Thank you for joining us here on a special edition of the Inscriber for Box News podcast. And joining me is on a special guest here. Uh, name is William Pellock from Twitter. And like I said, William, I want you to first introduce yourself. Um, yeah, I'm uh, William Package. I, you know, lifelong fan of wrestling, psychologist, uh, generally ordinary personality. <laughs> Um, and a heavy, heavy consumer of wrestling, I feel like, at this point. I swear to God, it's like 15 hours a week, it feels like, just keeping up with a handful of promotions. <laughs> yeah, that, that is very, very true. And this is something I actually wanted to launch for a long while, though, because we actually got introduced to a mutual friend, uh, Michael Wilson. Absolutely. Who, I love Mike. Great guy. Yeah. And like I said, I do uh, the boxing podcast with him, the Pound for Boxing Report. And yeah. He's actually pretty, like I say, he opened up to wrestling. He said, you know, I know you keep up with it more than I do. Here's this guy. He could probably talk about it, particularly like if it's AEW or, like I said, if it's AEW or New Japan, things like that. Mm-hmm. And so like, okay, cool. Yeah, because it's not all WWE. <laughs> yeah, Mike's knowledge is incredibly deep when it comes to boxing. It's It always shocks me when he gets to talking about boxing. He seems to know everything and to have seen everything. <laughs> Oh yeah! Oh, especially especially in the lower in the lower weight classes, mm-hmm. he is especially knowledgeable when it comes to that. Which is one of the things that I res- that I respected on when I first like hopped into his podcast, and I'm like, now I'm a regular, <laughs> and I, I was trying to invite I invite him when we do boxing me and like Joe Francis for boxing news, mm-hmm. but the wrestling thing is always something that I wanted to touch on because. I've always found, and this is probably contrary to what a lot of people believe, probably WWE more than anything, <clears throat> is that there's a lot more crossover between wrestling fans and boxing fans than there is wrestling fans and MMA fans. I can see that. Yeah, and I can th- definitely see that. And I always found it like I always find it a lot easier to transition to wrestling talk or transition to boxing talk from there. Where with MMA, I, I'll admit a lot of those fans do turn to be snob. And well, I wonder if some of that has to do with the history of going back to mixed martial arts back in the in the nineties when you really had Antonio Inoki in Japan, along with quite a few other people, pushing wrestling as both a performance art and a legitimate combat sport. Um, you know, like the beginning of Pancrase and Bass Root and fighting Minoru Suzuki and those kinds of things where you had shoots and worked matches on the same cards. And I feel like, at least as a distant observer, I'm not super into MMA, but I feel like there was definitely a step back at some point for MMA fans because they didn't want to be associated with the works anymore. Whereas boxing fans didn't necessarily have that hang up. No, oh, and what? Well, this is probably one something that's very probably coming in from a different front because it's actually one of the discussions I've wanted to have for a while mm-hmm. is seeing the triggers that ultimately led to the decline, like the twenty-year decline mm-hmm. in American enthusiasm for wrestling, and. Yeah. To me, what oh, what always came about is it wasn't so much 
the death of ECW, but definitely not just the death of WCW, but how WCW ended. Mm-hmm. Where I find it one of the I find it one of the biggest ironies in the world where WCW like had like the Southern wrestling fans still. And I'll, when WCW died, a good amount of them, they didn't just change the channel. They turned the television on. Right. They just stopped watching. Yep. And I always find a great irony because at the end of the day, that war was won by Sudner. <laughs> like Vince McMahon, for all, yeah, Vince McMahon, for all that he wants to deny, he's a North Carolina boy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I also think that the decline of wrestling has largely been the decline of wrestling on TV. The Indies are healthier now than they have ever been. Well, not now, thanks to the pandemic, but prior <laughs> to that, you know, there was an opportunity to see live professional wrestling where I am in Chicago, probably eight or 10 times a month. If you didn't want to leave the city limits and if you were willing to leave the city limits, you could easily see three shows a weekend, most weeks of the year. Um, I feel like there's been this massive resurgence in the Indies and guys who are again able to make money as if it was a full-time career because it is at this point for them guys who are able to make money in a way that they haven't been able to make money since the territory days in the late 70s. Yeah, that's but actually a lot of that. Say again? I'm sorry. Oh, I was just saying but a lot of that is you know it's not on television. You have to seek it out or go to the show or watch Fight TV. Um, you know, you can't just turn on, you know, your local WGN and get a, get a house show. It doesn't work that way anymore. Yeah. Well, yeah, they, I know at least out here in Long Island, they try like there's, there's like an indie federation that always tries to book the BWF hall. That's by my house. Mm -hmm. And they always try to book it like once every they always had to book at least once a month. So they always tried to make keep it active. Obviously, the pandemic took a nice little sledgehammer to that idea. Oh yeah. But there was but I know they tried to get into public access. But mm-hmm. if you know Long Island, like I said, if if Long Island unfortunately doesn't have an exactly a good history with public access <laughs> TV. Uh, yeah. In case people don't know, like one of the things that made Long Island famous is I forgot on what beef DVD this came out of. But it was one of those underground beefs where it was from a rap battle. Mm. And that rap, and it was a rap battle where you hear, oh, so you're making some Stalin on me. That ended up with a dude actually fighting, almost pulling a gun, and they broadcast that. <laughs> um, as soon as Cablevision was alerted to that, that killed that entire thing. Oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah, but it, it, it made it to it made it to a nationally sold DVD. <laughs> so that's one aspect yeah. <laughs> too. Now, one thing that's very very healthy, luckily about the and I do agree when it comes to the indies is a lot of kids can actually hone their craft but the main thing about it and it's probably what turns people off more about the indies and it's one of the reasons why 
we'll probably when we get into the whole this there's a there's a good discussion to have when it comes to what is allowed in Japanese in when it comes to Japanese shows as compared to Americans. Right. Is mainly what they focus on. And I'll admit a lot of a lot of the indies that I've seen have focused more a lot more on the performance. Yes. They've, yes. They've gone a lot more the PWG route than the Ring of Honor route. Right. It's it's white lucha. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> a good example, Chikara. <laughs> yeah. That is a great example. Um, we have one in Chicago, Freelance, that if, you, if you're going to freelance shows, you are getting usually a combination of some good high-flying comedy and then just other performance-based stuff. You're not getting a lot of super high-level technical grappling, but they're not selling it as that either. Like, freelance is very upfront about who and what they are. Well, yeah, and, and, and in many ways, I respect that. Like, so I respect that, okay, this is going to be the fun hour. But I think that's also think, been one of the big declines of it over here because there isn't a balance, unfortunately. No, there's there's not a lot of what I think a lot of people look for, especially people who are used to remembering the old WWE style. There aren't a lot of, you know, the big e-comment, big meaty men slapping meat. There just aren't <laughs> those hoss matches anymore um, because largely those aren't the guys who are on the indies. You have a few of them. Um, you know, there's always a handful of body guys and other, you know, big guys. Bear Country was a great example of just like huge guys that were doing well on the indies. They've since moved to AEW for a wider audience. Um, but you just don't get as much of that. You get a lot more of the performative high flying stuff, which I have always loved. But I think on the other side, a lot of people get turned off on the indies, especially if they're only brushing up against wrestling on Twitter because GCW is so big right now and so bloody. Um, yes, yes. And I've had a lot of people talk about not wanting to go see shows because they're afraid that it's going to be like that. But really, it's something that generally you have to seek out. Yes. And that's, like I said, that's what's something that's always perplexed me. Where I know. I think one of this is actually one of the things that that happened, unfortunately, with the death of kayfabe. Well, kayfabe mm-hmm. in the classical sense, right? Is it allowed guys to not have to work on some of the basics anymore? They said, like, right. we don't have to. We don't have to make a punch look like it's hitting you because the audience already knows we're not actually hitting you, <laughs> right? So now we get to focus on on other things, and that's probably one of my one of the things that I know. Guys in like in Dan, in Brian Danielson's generation are probably going to wind up regretting. Is that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In hindsight, the bad part is in hindsight, we started focusing on moves that wind up turning to be more dangerous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, if you look at if you look at Lucha Libre, though they still take kayfabe very seriously despite doing an extremely performative style. You know, those are guys who are doing those moves and who are t- 
taking those risks, but largely have spent a lot more time on the technical stuff. Um, and you see, I mean, you see injuries, but you also see guys walking away from situations where something went a little bit wrong, where I suspect in the U.S. it would have been fatal, or at least it would have been an ended career or two years off or something like that. There was a famous incident where Aerostar took a 30-foot fall and barely got caught and was only out briefly. Aerostar's back wrestling six months later. Um, the Ray Phoenix injury recently on AEW is another example of something where, you know, I think when you have guys who are more experienced, they just, they don't get hurt as often. You know, Ray Phoenix should be getting hurt every week, given the kinds of things he's pulling. Um, but he's not getting hurt as often as a lot of these guys doing lower risk, high flying stuff on the Indies because his fundamentals are much stronger. Yeah. But, but that's luckily one of the larger differences, though. It, he is coming from the Mexican Lucha School, which they right. built that into it. Like, they beat that right. in. Right. When you mix it in with an American style that doesn't really mesh as well, that's, and it's, well, unfortunately, what happened with Luchasaurus. Yeah. You have a lack of communication. Because I've seen that match. I, I think I saw Penta trying to take the table out. And saying we probably don't need the table for what we want to do. Uh yeah, yeah. It it, it was uh, Alex Abrahantes who brought the table out in the first place, right? Yeah, because I remember like their, I don't know what you call him, manager, valet, <laughs> translator. Yeah, and but they they tried to say it into it, but it's one of the bad things about what's happening is that people. Uh, in lack of a better term, so as Brian Cage's trunks put in one time, you have to get your shit. Trying in. to get their shit in, <laughs> yeah. And sometimes getting your shit in gets people hurt. Now I have mixed feelings on on the that match though, because the spot that they did is almost identical to the spot that you oftentimes see when you have celebrities in matches. Shaq took a very similar table fall to what phoenix took in that yeah. match it, yeah. it's a pretty safe spot but when you're doing seven or eight of them a, a week wednesdays and fridays that's when it starts to become a problem because just the law of large numbers is going to catch up with you eventually yeah and what what uh, probably falls into me in this aspect when it comes into that and this is and this is why like I say this is tended, this one was more of Luchasaurus than anything. Mm-hmm. Even when you have Shaq and other people doing it, you don't have people try to follow you down. They just try to make sure that you're as flat as you can. Right. When they do the choke slam and then you just have to put your arms up and let your back and let your back get beat up by the table. Yeah. And unfortunately yeah, I don't know why Luchasaurus left the apron on that. I agree. Yeah, and that's and that, that to me that's what probably threw Phoenix off center and then he landed the way he did in his arm. Well, I mean if you if you watch the <coughs> clip, he also screwed up. You know, mm-hmm. Phoenix is an incredible professional, and I'm never I couldn't do anything he does. And I'm not gonna second guess, but like maybe screwed up is too hard, but his arm went the wrong way. Yeah. Um his arm was behind him when it shouldn't have been behind him which wasn't really on Luchasaurus. It's just, we have seen Phoenix realize and and correct in dangerous situations like that a thousand times before. 
but you get to a thousand and some of them you're going to get hurt, unfortunately. And this was one that was horrible. I felt incredibly bad for him. Yeah. I, I, part um, of me, part of me doesn't believe what they put on it. Like you sprained your elbow. Like, no, no, that, that don't look like an elbow. You broke an arm <laughs> and you broke an arm in a pretty high spot that there's a good chance. You're not going to see Ray Phoenix for the rest of the year. It, that's possible. It looked to me like the joint gave way. Yeah. Um, which made it look worse than it was. But again, you know, that's, I'm not his doctor. <laughs> exactly. Ex- we don't know what's going on at that stage into it now. We don't. It's actually, this is actually a good segue into, like, I know we had, like I said, we had a discussion in the BMs before we started this mm-hmm. about, at least when American fans let slide when it comes to certain things Absolutely. go off and what we mentioned into is because it was Wrestle Kingdom and Wrestle mm-hmm. Kingdom a three night event really good show unfortunately the crowd just wasn't as there but part of it is Japan is right. really trying to lock down yeah they're they take it they're even sanitizing the rings every few matches yes and like, <laughs> like they're so, very serious about COVID yep and it's one of the reasons why they had to make Wrestle Kingdom a three night event Granted, also, it's New Japan versus Noah. You kind of need right. There was a, the third night was New Japan Noah. Yeah. And Although like, it didn't yeah. need to be a three night event. You, there was fat that could have been cut. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, there, there, there's always fat that needs to be cut. That's it's the same thing. Like Wrestle Kingdom is is New Japan's WrestleMania, and there's always yeah. fat that can be cut from WrestleMania. It's the same thing. Yeah, it's just too big. <laughs> yeah, but one of the things that we got worried about was. That USA US title match between Tanahashi and Kenta, which yes, we didn't notice at the time until they put out the press release of how fucked up Kenta got in that match. Yes, like, well, and that one that one felt a little irresponsible to me also because I tend to look at I tend to look at those kinds of ladder matches, lots of tables, spots, things like that as being a specialty. That's a skill you have to build. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Kenta has a great history. Tanahashi is one of the best in the business, incredibly well-respected and justifiably so. But those aren't the kinds of matches they do. <laughs> They're both, you know, traditional kind of post-King's Road Japanese guys. You know, they're not, they're not flying off of ladders all the time. Um, and there was nobody in that ring that was a specialist in that kind of match, which worried me. Even going into it, it was concerning. Um, and then Kenta, unfortunately, got really hurt as a result and couldn't make uh, New Japan versus Noah. Yeah, and but it does translate into like it does translate into what we uh, wanted to do because the reaction, at least the reaction here from what I saw, mm-hmm. wasn't as harsh as the reaction to the Phoenix spot. Right. Now, nobody talked about it It being like that match is not going to have anything on Botchamania. Yeah. <laughs> I would guess. Um, you know, nobody was, was coming out talking about how unsafe the spots were, unsafe the workers were. And I know part of that is the really toxic AEW versus WWE, you know, internet wrestling community fandom garbage. Um, but part of it too is I, I really feel like we give, we, we assess the Japanese wrestlers in a very different way <laughs> than we do the Americans when it comes to risk. 
Yes. And I wanted to dig into the reason why into it. And I wanted, I yeah. wanted to gauge like yours in your area. Why do you think that at least us in that end and to the extent also Japanese fans give such rope to them the way that we don't give as much rope to American or even Mexican wrestlers? Well, I think I think part of it goes back to the mystique that Japanese wrestling had, you know, especially in the 90s and the tape trading days where Japanese wrestling really was something that was almost impossible for you to find. And it was this hardest of the hardcore, incredibly technical. The death matches were more violent than anything you would ever see in ECW. Everything was more extreme. You know, the, the days when like you couldn't go on YouTube and see a burning hammer, you'd have to like find a guy who had the tape trade for the tape and see this incredibly dangerous move that one guy can pull off with a handful of partners who could, it um and so we okayed that and then as wrestling started to have its resurgence in the last 10 or 15 years and you started to have people watching americans watching japanese wrestling largely because of the elite the young bucks kenny omega you know that whole cluster of things that was happening in new japan and in ddt pro um, not that people weren't watching for other reasons, but I think that's the whole bullet club thing drew a lot of American fans. You had a resurgence of this mystique of strong style. And part of what I love about it is exactly the same reason I think a lot of American fans give them more latitude is Japanese wrestlers tend to work a lot more snugly. It, there is the hits are a lot closer. There's a lot more roughness. There's a lot more impact even though there's not as many high flying moves, there's, there's far more dangerous moves and things that you just don't see in American wrestling. So many people have gotten their necks broken in WWE that no producer is ever going to allow guys in a warm up match to be doing high angle backdrops and the kinds of bridging German suplexes where the guy doing the bridge is standing on his head. You know, it's just not going to be allowed, but in Japan it's allowed. You know, in Japan, they're potatoing each other in tests of endur endurance. In Japan, they're doing what we're starting to see in AEW, where they're trading chops until somebody's chest looks like hamburger meat. You know, they're doing those things, and that's part of why you go and watch Japanese wrestling, is to watch this more raw, closer to MMA, closer to a combat sport type of match. And I think because of that, we don't really think about what's happening to these guys doing those matches, because that's the reason we watched them now whereas sorry go on oh no no go ahead Ben. i was just going to say whereas if you're watching a match with say randy orton randy orton is always going to put on a technically proficient relatively safe match you know he's always going to show up and be a professional but if he has to err, he's usually going to err on the side of caution. Now, it's not to say that Orton's never had botches or never done stuff that he shouldn't have done. But in <laughs> general, you know, most of those top level guys in the WWE, which for a long time was the only business in town, most of those guys didn't want to end up like Benoit or Foley. And most, and certainly, management didn't want them ending up that way either vince stopped blood on television he really wanted to make it safer and more sanitized and in some ways that's been great you have guys that are wrestling well into their 40s and 50s that would have been done given the states of their bodies otherwise um 
but it does mean that there's a little bit less of that kayfabe. It does mean that the punches don't land quite as nicely. It does mean that you're not really digging that forearm shiver in really heavily. It does mean that you're taking some of these scarier moves off the plate. And it does mean that guys who have a lower level of technical skill are able to get by and get over. And so I think we tend to treat Japanese wrestlers as if they're this mystical, hyper-tough warriors from a bygone era with this incredible training that can't, that can't get hurt. You know, like we joke about Kota Ibushi and Tetsuo Naito taking neck bumps all day because they're made of rubber. Like, but these are real human beings at the end of the day. And if we saw that match, nobody would think it was okay if, you know, Biggie and Brock Lesnar were dropping each other on their heads for 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. Well, the main thing you, you could call into that spot that people always remember is when, granted, he did it a lot in OVW, but when Brock tried that moonsault in WrestleMania and almost broke his neck. It wasn't a moonsault. It was a shooting star press. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was, it was a shooting star press that he tried at, after like 20-something minutes in the ring after him and Angle had been suplexing each other a hundred times and they were gassed. Yeah, that, but that's the thing. Like He got used to doing it in getting in short in, matches. Yeah, in short matches when King thinks like that. Now, and sorry, go on. No, no, oh, no, go ahead. I can't imagine how different things would be right now in the WWE if Brock had landed that. I almost think it's a good thing that he didn't. Although, um, it, it is at the end, it because is because he end. is one of the few guys at his size who had any business even thinking about that. <laughs> yes, but, but it, it also led to him. Doing a lot more safe spots into it because he right. he was a little bit crazy early on in the career, yeah. but that that helped him alleviate some of it. Now, but him doing the safer spots slowed down the card across the board. Yeah, and I think that's part of the problem that we see in AEW is that because you have these huge dangerous spots becoming every day guys lower down the card who maybe aren't ready to be doing them are accelerating and trying to do things that maybe they're not quite ready to do. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's especially clear with the dives as much as I love them. You know, I love a tope. (laughs) (laughs) I always love a dive, but you do see guys taking dives and wondering why the hell did you do that? You know, why is a guy as tall as Lance Starcher ever trying to do a dive? That shouldn't, like, he has no need to do that. (laughs) But I think there gets to be, like, this machismo backstage of, like, well, if he did it, I got to do it. And that worries me a little bit sometimes. And that's what I want to fall into when it comes into it. That's one of the reasons why I said in hindsight, we're winding up doing moves that are more dangerous in the end. Mm -hmm. And that's coming in at the preliminary level. It's not somebody that's Mm -hmm. been doing it for decades. It's kids that are barely just getting out of wrestling school. Yeah, decided that they, hey, I want to do a Tupe Salcido or I want to do a Canadian Destroyer. And looking at it like, no, 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 no. Uh, like, uh, learn, learn a flat bump first. 
learn to suplex first. <laughs> and you don't have to. Like the, the thing that gets me is that if you're somebody who's good at that, fine, figure it out and do it. Guys like Ricochet or Will Osprey, like go nuts. That's fine. But if we take a look at somebody like AJ Gray on the Indies, yeah. AJ Gray is making good money. He's very, very popular. He's an incredible performer, super fun to watch. His finisher is a lariat. Fine. It it's it's still entertaining. <laughs> it is. I'm not I'm not gonna deny that part. I'm never gonna deny that part. Now I I wanna delve into, like I said, what I like is because I want to tie my thoughts in this in this aspect when it came to Japanese. You mentioned some of what I was going into. Sure. When it came to like just looking at them being like larger than life figures. Mm-hmm. But I think also a lot of it is at least in many ways the deference that Americans have when it comes to yes. Asian culture and when it comes to Japanese culture, particularly when it comes to Bushido. Yes. And like I said, this and I know this very well because of boxing. Like Japanese fighters mm-hmm. are bred in a way where they have to give out more than they have to. There was right. a fight, I think it was, I think it's in 2012, 2013 in San Antonio. It was no, I think it was Minoto Anakawa versus Omar Figueroa. It was a lightweight fight. Mm-hmm. Figueroa was beating the living lights out of Arakawa. Like there was no way in hell, like if we if we went to the scorecards, that Arakawa was going to win. But because Arakawa was not giving up and he was still throwing, mm-hmm. people loved it. And yeah. And I, and it was on Showtime, so obviously Mar Ronaldo kept yelling out, "You see that Bushido showing up," and I think that's what that's the main leash that we're giving in to Japanese wrestlers. We're giving into like, oh no, we have to let them do what they want to do. It's that it's that Bushido, it's that Bushido, it's their it's cultural awesome. thing. They have to do it, but unfortunately, it's also what what. The Japanese audience and the Japanese promoters now just believe that's all Americans want from Japanese. I don't think it's just Americans. That if you if you watch a lot of New Japan, that idea of of the guy who just has so much fighting spirit that he won't stay down is not just a core spot in a lot of Japanese matches, it is it is almost the equivalent of, you know, the classic American shine turn finish wrestling match, like the by the book, by the numbers match. If you're doing a singles match in New Japan, oftentimes that's the story. You know, that is, that is kind of the basic go-to tried and true, this will always work out story. Um, I feel like like a guy like Naito has built his career on being a little bit smaller and a little bit less ripped than his opponents and just looking like he's dying for 25 minutes before he turns it around. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, to make it look like that, you've got to take some bumps. Yep. 
I, I don't disagree there. Like it has to fall into it. But then that's also one of the things that Japanese wrestling did bring out where there was a little bit different than American wrestling. Like they weren't the land of the giants. Yeah. They yeah. loved it. The, they loved it when our giants came in. Like they loved it when the road warriors came by. Vader. And, and Vader in that front. Vader, Angle, Lesnar. Like when the Stan big Hansen. Yep. Dan Severn. Like they loved it when. Oh yeah. They loved it when those guys came in there because they're overall like their overall population is it is on the smaller side when it comes into compared to Americans in a lot right. of respects. So it feels like in a way like they had to do it because you're trying to sell, <clears throat> even though we know the the story of Ricky Dozen, like how, how he popularized. Yeah. Wrestling in Japan. But at the end of the day, they had to cater to the audience that technically created it, which is mm-hmm. American Carnies. And <laughs> that's true. And unfortunately, American Carnies, they like they like weird things. <laughs> they like <laughs> extraordinary things. Yeah. Although a lot of the guys who were training in Japan weren't necessarily Americans. They were Europeans who made money in America and then went to Japan to keep training. Guys like Carl Gotch. Yep. And but that's what they bought into. It's like, hey, I'm coming in from America, and this is what they like, mm-hmm. and, and that falls <clears throat> into a lot of what they do. But unfortunately, in many ways, that has dug in. It's yeah. really, really dug in, in not only this, not only like in wrestling, but in pretty much overall Japanese culture, that it'll be tough to break out. And like I said, we give deference to that. We want to give deference to that, even though at the end of the day, we're not going to give them the same amount of leeway if they come here. Like we, we, it's Kyrie Singh is actually a good example. Mm-hmm. She did really well. She was always good. And if you knew about her career, you knew what she fought for just to come here. Yeah, but the WWE was never going to let her go like a Joshi. (laughs) Exactly. And unfortunately, and unfortunately also, she never really adjusted to the amount of vitriol that American fans threw at her. It's one of the reasons why she wanted to leave. Like She said, I'm willing to work with you, WWE. I'm willing to do certain things, but I'd rather do it in Japan. I'd rather do it in my own country. Although you are seeing Japanese wrestling be directly exported to the U.S. in the form of New Japan Strong. Yes. You know, that American show that they're doing, which is mostly American talent, um, looks like Japanese show. <coughs> they're training these guys like, like they're in Japan. They're coming in as snug. And I think part of that is the entire Shibata situation. Yeah. Um, and Shibata's outlook that you know I don't necessarily think is healthy. Um, but you know, you're starting to see that in the U S and that's another thing where I haven't seen many people complaining about the risks guys are taking on new Japan strong, despite the fact that they're coming at each other very hard. Yeah. But 
it's probably why because they're like, oh, it's New Japan strong. It's, like, it's what it's expected of them because they're just New Japan. Right. We Where also, if we... I think. Again, I was just gonna say, I, I think we also, and one of the things that maybe we could we could be getting into that we didn't quite get into in that DM discussion is that I think we overestimate the danger of high spots and underestimate the danger of just old-fashioned blows to the head. Oh no, that I agree. I agree. It's one of the reasons why not learning it and not learning the fundamentals of it really winds up hurting at the end because you'll wind up in a situation where what I've seen a lot of it and this and uh, the the best example I can give is how Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn just go at each other when they're loud. Yeah. It's like they don't they don't throw punches, they throw forearms into right. their faces. And unfortunately the forearm is still a pretty solid piece of bone. <laughs> Right. And that well, winds up hurting the knee. <laughs> well, and one of the things that I've seen a, that I've seen a fair amount is that you have a lot of forearm shots that are designed to go like along the clavicle. Like, I guess I would say you, you draw a line from, you know, the outer edge of your trap to your sternum. And that's basically where the forearm is coming in. It makes a nice sound. It causes a good impact. Nobody's getting hit in the head. But when you're throwing 50 of those a match, with guys who aren't necessarily, you know, with guys who are mid-tier, but not necessarily like at the top of their careers yet, who are still fairly young, you see a lot of elbows to the face happen. <laughs> um, yep. And you do see guys get rocked that probably, you know, we know what the chair shots did to guys in the 90s and the early 2000s. I'm worried about what the elbows are doing right now. Yeah. And that's the that's the aspect that worries me too, and that's one of the reasons why there has to probably, there has to be parity in what we allow. Honest, and it, it would benefit actually also the Japanese audiences in a way, because unfortunately, Bushido feeds into a lot of their culture mm-hmm. as far as going all the way overworking. And just doing more than what you probably are physically able to do. It you see that like world worlds where it's regular work and probably the most famous industry you ever see it in is, is, is in the anime industry. You, you hear horror stories of animators mm-hmm. just working like days, days and nights. But that's because that's what expected of them. And they can't do it any other way. And unfortunately, that's what feeds into it. But if we show a little bit of parity, we should focus a little bit more on that aspect. Because, like you mentioned, the chop shots. You mentioned like how AEW yeah. starting to let people chop into things. WWE yeah. is doing the same thing. Like Walter's coming yeah. to NXT, and that dude right. will chop you into hamburger meat. Right. I mean, the, there's that famous picture of him in PCO, where PCO looks like he's got a chest tattoo. <laughs> Yeah, and it's just like I, one blood blister. I saw them. Was I went like Jesus Christ, and that yeah. was and and I went like, oh damn, Walter. But mm-hmm. it's a style that he's actually perfected, and right. He only he'll granted he'll only do it with certain people. Like he'll 
Right. You got to volunteer, I, su- I suspect. <laughs> yeah. Like he'll do it with Matt Riddle. He'll do it with Ilya Dragunov because Dragunov will chop him just as badly. Right. And, but it is something that we have to focus on when it came to parody now. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things that actually happened because I did want to transition a little bit into the AEW side of things. Sure. Because, like I said, we could, like this discussion, I'm pretty sure we're probably going to have in the G1 or whenever they're going to have their next super card here in the States because it's going to factor happen, unfortunately. I don't see I don't see Japan coming to the U.S. for a while just because of the the COVID care. I think to segue it into AEW, the place we're most likely to see it is we've already seen some amount of New Japan talent coming to the U.S. and doing a tour. Yeah, um, Jay White is here now. We saw Suzuki do that tour where he played. It seemed like every indie in the country. <laughs> Pretty much, um, yeah. Uh, Yuji Nagata uh, and Suzuki is a guy that we could talk about forever when it comes to the passes that we give. I love Suzuki, but I mean, he is rough. Uh, well, yeah, he's one of the guys that never really transitioned from MMA to wrestling completely. And it's one of the things that people love. Well, he founded Pancrase. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know. There's there's not a lot to say beyond that. He founded Pancras. He's going to run that rough style. But I think we're going to see more and more guys from Japan coming to the U.S. And one of the one of the concerns I have is what happens when we start to see some higher level New Japan talent that isn't necessarily used to working with people who don't have the same level of training. Oh yeah. Oh that, that's that that one's um, gonna be rough. That you know, one's like, you you bring a guy like Okada or Tanahashi, you know, they're untouchable. They will put on safe matches with anybody. It's like I'm not worried that Okada's gonna hurt anybody. But you take somebody like a step down from there. If you bring, you know, like a Sonata in or um uh Takagi or one of those guys, I'm a little bit concerned what happens when a guy like Shingo is put in the ring. And if you put him in the ring with someone who is a U.S. mid Carter, you know, if you give Shingo a squash match on AEW, what happens? You, you know, who I was actually worried about until I saw a little bit Ishii. Hmm. I was worried with Ishii. <laughs> well, Ishii was like, Ishii was not super impressive when he was working in the U S in my opinion, because he clearly knew that he had to come out at about 75%. Um, yeah. And he did that. And that that's, that's my word. It's like, you can tell like he wants to do more, but he, he said like, if I do more, I'll wind up hurting these people. Right. And I don't well, want to do that. Ishii is another great example of, you watch Ishii walk, and that reputation he has for being made out of stone and the neck bumps don't bother him, you can tell he has trouble with mobility in his neck. Yeah. You can tell that this style he's worked has ground him up. And part of why I think he's worked the style he's worked is he's a smaller guy, even for Japan. I, despite the fact that he's like farmhand strong, like just built like a human cube, um, he's on the shorter side. And I think that has had an effect on like some of the risks that he is willing to take um, in order to show his toughness. Oh, that part I can agree. 
I can agree fully yeah. into that because it always you any Ishii match that you saw, you always felt like he felt like he was proving himself more mm-hmm. than what he needed to do. Yes. And I know a lot of that had to do with just the perception that you guys have because the guy is literally the guy is kind of built in many ways like Butterbean. <laughs> and like as Jim Ross puts it, like Butterbean was built like an like a, an appliance. Yeah. It's a gigantic square that has a head. Yeah, I've 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 described Ishii as being a fire plug with arms and legs. Like he's like a fire hydrant coming at a guy. <laughs> Just solid but compact. Yeah. And that's that's gonna fall into it when it came into what's gonna happen in AW now. Mm-hmm. A lot of AW news happened, unfortunately, in the new year. Yep. And Eddie Kingston got injured. That just fell or that just dropped. That just dropped. Wow. Eddie Kingston got hurt. And you know what? Tony Khan decided to start the new year with a bang. Oh yeah. It, honestly, I think some of the matches that looked the scariest were some of the were, were matches that were well considered and made sense. Yeah. Um, I know I know that incredibly bloody women's match with Penelope and the bunny and Tay Conti and um Anna J. Yeah. Got a lot of got a lot of heat, which I think was unwarranted and unfair. Um I think it's just people aren't used to seeing women bleed. <laughs> it's really what it comes down to. And you had you had four people who went very, very hard and had every right to do so. You know, they're professionals. Why should they not get to do it? Uh, but I think that match scared a lot of people. And I don't think it should have. I think people are paying attention to the wrong matches <laughs> when it comes to, to danger. Yeah. And that front, and that front, I'll agree into it. But like I said, I'm, I'm, luckily, like it's, it's in the middle of January. So we've had, I wanted to go over like the timeline. Sure. Just the insanity that just happened in and outside of the ring when it comes to AEW. Like I said, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. Mm-hmm. You had that. You had that podcast with Big Swole. I will say, like she, she wasn't the best person in the ring. She wasn't completely green either. It's just right. that it was. It was going to take her time to really polish. But. She she had her own podcast. She talked about her experience in AEW. If you listen to the thing, like she doesn't say any disparaging words towards Tony Khan. Not a word. No. In fact, she talks about like how he takes them out every Friday. Yeah. Like he closes down restaurants. And the most polite and constructive of criticism she gave. She gave into it. This is just be like, right. hey, uh, there's not a lot of structure here. And that does help. And that was one of my biggest worries, unfortunately, mm-hmm. when AEW launched, where they were talking about, oh, we're going to give the guys freedom to do. I'm like, mm-hmm. some, I'm like, there's some people that are just naturally shy. They're not going to yep. say what they want to do, and they're going to get run over by people yep. who do know what they want to do. And that's what Big Swole was saying. Like, mm-hmm. like, hey, yeah, there's a couple of people that want to do it. I think she mentioned Diamante has been one of the people that she needed mm-hmm. to help out on that front. And between that and then the and then obviously the criticism that Fightful picked up and blew up that when I mentioned the lack of diversity, at least when it comes to upper management in AEW. And 
in the first I, I wanted to know what your reaction was when you first saw Tony's reaction to that. Stupid. Completely out of line. Like even if even if you agreed with what he was saying, which I did not, even if you thought he was right, it was the dumbest possible business move, in my opinion. You know, she didn't have a huge platform. Um, if you really thought that she was saying something disparaging, just shut up and wait a minute. It's Twitter. It will go away in a day. Um, now, I think if he was smart, he should have listened to her. But, you know, that's a different story entirely. Uh, but I think his response was just over the top and aggressive and unnecessary. And I think it, it showed it showed him poorly. It presented him in a very unflattering light. And he had nobody to blame but himself. Um, and I get it. He felt like he was being attacked. He felt like the criticism was unfair. I hear that. But from a business perspective, I just don't understand what he was thinking. It's not, to me, it wasn't even that part that got me into it. Because, unfortunately, I, I'm used to Tony Khan doing this. Sure. I'm used to him doing it when it comes to Fulham. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm used to him doing it when it comes to the Jacksonville Jaguars. Yep. Like, I'm completely used to him doing that aspect into the, into the response. But you've already had at least one major instance where you where you had your foot in your mouth in the wrestling front. Mm-hmm. That's, that was major, and it was tied to women. And that was, remember that, I think it was the, was it All Out or the next pay-per-view after that, where they had a conference and they were talking about the NWA power. Yeah. Debut, and his answer was immediately, well, I wish NWA would have thanked me more. Right. And just like, but that wasn't the question. The question was, when are you going to have your show? We already have a Vince McMahon. We don't need a second one. Yeah. And that aspect, even if that's who you are personally, rein it the fuck in. <laughs> yeah. And that fun, like, okay, that brought it into it. But then I start, but then you start to look at it and that fed into what happened next yeah. week. And, and that's probably the over discussion we'll probably wind up having is that, okay, you responded, you responded dumb. You. You pretty much let everything else dominate because you drowned out that match. It's true. You drowned out that match with Penelope, Tecanti, mm-hmm. Anna Jay. Like you drowned out that match. And to me, okay, uh, it's probably because, at least to me in a way, Britt Baker kind of own, owns the concept of being bloodied up as a woman in AEW because she did it so well when she did, when she had that match with Thunder Rosa. Yeah. And she owned it so well that I think that is her shtick. And well, except, except she's only done it the once it's yeah, it's part of her video package and everything, but I, if you're going to have a company where out of, eight or nine shows on television in a week, depending on if there's a pay-per-view, like let's say there's eight shows a week. If you're going to have eight shows a week and on one or two of those eight or a month and on one or two of those eight shows a month, someone's bleeding. I don't think there should only be one woman who's doing it 
if there are others who are interested in providing that kind of entertainment and that kind of performance. Um, and I don't necessarily think it even works particularly well for her character. She did great, don't get me wrong, but it's not, I don't think the blood served Britt Baker's character nearly as well as the shot we got of Bunny with the crazy eyes and half of her face covered. Yeah, I, I think that did infinitely more for Bunny than it did for Britt. And I love that Britt did it. You know, I, I think it's great that, that Britt decided to put on that kind of match, that she was comfortable with it, that she was confident with it. I think it was really good. Um, I just don't, I think if we're really going to talk about women's wrestling being equal, you know, if they want to, if they want to do it, why should we argue about them doing it? Yeah. That, you know? That's what bothered me about like the heat. Like, oh, people got heat yeah. of it. Is it, is it like, I, I looked at it and said, is it just, I like, to me, when I say like, she owned it, like she really, yeah. Like she took ownership of that look, Brit, and mm-hmm. it, it didn't bother her in a certain extent. It, it was, it was pretty much, it was her Becky Lynch moment. I call it like, right. Like right. Becky Lynch owned that thing, even though, yeah, she was concussed about doing it, but she owned it. Mm-hmm. And Bunny owned that thing, but yep, I don't. I don't think the rest of the uh, of the women did. That's the problem of it. Like one person owned it, and then everybody else, it didn't really work. But I think it's the concept of the fact that Bunny's a Bunny's a pretty girl. A Conti's a pretty girl. Mm-hmm. Anna Jay's a pretty girl. All of them are pretty girls, right. and. I think yeah, that's the thing that people bothered into it. I think they, I think they would be fine. Unfortunately, if it was like a Nyla Rose or Hikaru Shida. Sure, but see, that almost makes me like it more. And this is this is partly because you know my my tastes tend to run towards the transgressive. But like, I really like that they were able to do this thing that was thoughtful and artful and provided an interesting juxtaposition. And if we're really going to think about wrestling as art art should make people uncomfortable. (laughs) You know, they didn't do anything to offend somebody. They didn't make an ass of themselves like Max Caster. You know, they, they didn't do anything wrong. They went out and they forced people to talk. They caused a discussion. They made some people uncomfortable. They pushed some limits without having to do anything that was inappropriate, without having to do anything that hurt anyone else. And, you know, I, I was really impressed by the way they put that match together. Are there things that could have been better? Sure. Nothing's perfect. But like, I, I was very impressed by the fact that, especially since you had four very attractive women going out there and doing a match that was almost the polar opposite of the nineties brawn panty matches. You know, I felt like that was almost a statement from the women's division. Same with the Brit match, honestly, the Brit and Thunder Rosa match of, we can do anything the guys can do and we can make it look just as good. You know, this is not, this is not titillation. This isn't prurient. This is a wrestling match. And if this is part of what wrestling looks like, we should be able to be here. Yeah. I was very impressed by that. Oh no, that part, I, that part, I agree. Like I, I understood from a storyline standpoint, why some people had an issue with it because you escalated it to that drastic point without telling the story, but mm-hmm. You know what? They agreed to it, and they came out better for it. Mm-hmm. Especially Ty, Ty Conti should be the textbook story. Yeah, of somebody actually getting better 
after leaving WWE. Yep. Because she's leaps and bounds better than what she was in NXT at this stage. Yeah. But unfortunately, that's <laughs> she's now known for something else than that match. This stupid Sammy situation. Who cares? <laughs> Sorry, I, I have very little interest in the drama. <laughs> that no, that part annoyed me. I'm just like, first of all, yeah, granted, granted, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not Mr. TMZ when it comes to their personal lives. It took this for me to find out that she was the a she was married and b that she got divorced more than a year ago. Yeah, and it's just like okay, because you know what it reminded me of, and it, and it reminded me of in the worst aspect of it. The Corey Graves thing with Carmella. I could see that. Yeah, because again, it was a situation. They get accused of being. In case people don't know what what that is, is Corey Graves' ex-wife went out and basically accused Corey Graves of cheating on her with Carmella. At least initially into it, and then afterwards, you tend to find out that no, they separated six months ago. They're getting divorced, and he just started dating Carmella, and it's just a case of jealousy or other things getting into a situation that didn't need it. And to me, this is a similar aspect to it. Like, I was already divorced. She's a single woman. And if we're going to take Sammy's word, they've been broken up since October. I'm like... Frankly, I don't I don't care about their personal lives yeah. like this. This isn't Hulk Hogan being a raging racist or Jimmy Schnooka killing his girlfriend and Vince McMahon helping him cover it up. Allegedly, uh, like this isn't something horrible. There's no shortage of horrible people in the wrestling business. These are two attractive 20 year olds hooking up under who knows what circumstances and everybody was consenting and maybe somebody somewhere got their feelings hurt. And then poor Tay Conti has to get chased off of Twitter for that. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Like she, I, I don't know for how many days, but I'm just, I'm like, I'm like, like really? I, that's what I felt like. Really? You guys yeah. did into it, into that one. But that, like I said, that was just what's happened within just the last two weeks because between Doing what he did mm-hmm. between people reacting the way they did to Sammy and Tay and Tay dating. And then you probably saw you probably saw the Kenny Omega bullshit happen too. Oh, there's an endless stream of Kenny Omega bullshit because I think people are bothered by his style and people are bothered by some other aspects of his personality and identity as well. And that one of it, that one I figured, like, you know, is the same thing with Tony. Like, you could have just been quiet. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, yeah, people know that you are booking the women's division. And, and this is one of the bad things about Jim Cornette, unfortunately. He's pretty much planted into the head of his fans. Yep. That the only reason that Riho is in AEW is because for lack of a better word, she's fucking Kenny. <laughs> Which is ridiculous because I don't think she is. I mean, it's ridiculous for lots of reasons, but like, 
I'm sorry, Riho's an entertaining performer. Riho's good at what she does. She is. It's, like it's, she is. <laughs> I think people just discount the fact that she's small and that what she sure. wears. And just right. like I'm just like, yeah, but she's small. But Kyrie was almost as small as she was. Mm-hmm. And the outfits were almost as frilly as Riho's. Well, and I think you're hitting on something there with what she wears, because I think even American audiences that are familiar with Japanese wrestling aren't familiar with a lot of Japanese women's wrestling. One of the big problems I have with New Japan is they really don't have a women's division. This Wrestle Kingdom, they had a women's tag match um, where it was four women from stardom, and it was the first time New Japan had had women in the ring in 20 years. Yeah. Um. Like, they don't even have, for the most part, valets. There's one valet in the company. There are no women on screen. Um, and so I think a lot of American fans that watch Japanese wrestling aren't really familiar with Japanese women's wrestling. And it's, it's a different aesthetic, you know, that is influenced by a radically different culture. And I think it's easy to make fun of if you are, you know, some chuddy old man like Jim Cornette or someone who's really uncomfortable with wrestling not looking tough enough for you. Yeah. Because I think people, most of the people who are criticizing the Joshi, the Japanese women's wrestlers, are people who've seen pictures of them and have seen the outfits, but have never watched the matches. Yeah. And because I'm sorry, when it comes into when it comes into the whole factor of it is, okay, you want to make fun of Joshi wrestling, but guess what? That's the same school that she does from. Mm-hmm. That's the same school that Oscar's from. Mm-hmm. That Io Shirai is from. Mm-hmm. And those are some of the toughest women in the business. Right. Well, I, I will say all day, part of why I have not gotten as deeply into Joshi as I might otherwise have is that I am uncomfortable with the level of violence in some of those matches. They are rough. And they are rough like New Japan was 10 years ago. Yes. Um, and it, you know, I'm a, I'm a psychologist. I'm fairly sensitive to head injuries. And some of what they're doing makes me uncomfortable for them. Um, but it's not that they're unsafe. It's not that they're not great wrestlers. It's not that they're not great performers. I, I, watch less Joshi wrestling than I might otherwise watch for the same reason that I watch less deathmatch wrestling than I might otherwise watch is it's, it makes me personally uncomfortable sometimes. Um, And that part, I, that part, I agree in that aspect of it where, yeah, you're uncomfortable with the way they're they're doing things. And it's probably because of the way they're dressed. Like you don't think they're going to go out to fight, but that's what impresses a lot of people more like, yeah, you're wearing Philly dresses, but those, but then the fact that Philly dresses soaked in blood afterwards. Well, it, they don't even have to be soaked in blood because there's not necessarily a ton of bleeding. But I mean, also, the Philly dresses aren't accidental. They provide a lot of movement and they hide a lot of things that male wrestlers that are just in trunks don't have the opportunity to hide. You know, it makes the performances a little bit more real when there's enough stuff floating around in a really kinetic costume and a very kinetic move to hide, you know, to create the visual illusion, to create the sleight of hand, to hide the tricks. Yes. Um, everything looks so much scarier. 
<laughs> oh no, it kind of does. It it, it kind of does. It well, the way I I think I equated it to somebody, because like I said, I don't watch that. I don't watch a lot of Joshi, mm-hmm. unfortunately, because of, of the same reason that you gave. But I I told somebody why they dress, why they look like this. I'm like, I think I told them like this. Imagine it, but because they were anime fans too. Luckily, yeah. so it was easier to turn this. Okay. Right. Just think of this as Madoka Magica in the real world. Right. And they're like, oh, okay, I get it. Because obviously Madoka Magica, people don't know, it's one of those magical girl shows that the beginning completely, completely blindsides you to what the end is going to be. I, I have described it when I've had that discussion. My comment has been, why did Joshi dress like that? Why does every American pro wrestler start out looking like a superhero. <laughs> like if you think of a pro wrestler in your head, you're thinking of a 1950s superhero costume. You got the boots, you got the trunks, you got the wristbands. It's all bright primary colors. Like that's, you know, that's the, that's the cultural piece of it, of what you're performing. That's what looks larger than life. Yeah, that's true. Like obviously the, the best example is John Cena. Off the top of my head, <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, I see. looks up. like an action figure. <laughs> yep. Well, he 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 was the prototype. So <laughs> he was the prototype. That is true. <laughs> so that falls into it, but I think that's a, one of a lot of differences when it comes into Joshi wrestling. Now, I will admit, I agree with a good amount of what Cornette says as far as like psychology and technique and some fronts into mm-hmm. it and <clears throat> but it is a latitude that unfortunately that he's fed into that has fed into not only his fans but general fans and that's one of the things that i wish kenny would just relax into like look you're you're canadian you are next door neighbors to us you know our attitude towards certain things yeah i i also think one of the things that I have been struck with watching Kenny's career over a number of years, though, is that he is like, yes, he's a nerd, <laughs> but he is passionate and genuine. And I, I have always gotten the impression that it bothers him on a basic level, the fact that someone is suggesting, not necessarily the fact that someone is imputing his integrity, but the fact that someone is suggesting that a performer like Riho would have to sleep with him in order to belong there when he's like, she belongs here more than most of us. <laughs> you know, when he knows how good she is and he knows where she came from and he knows her pedigree and who trained her and who she worked with and what she did to get to where she is. Yeah. Um, I, I think I, I, I know a part of why, why people bother her because it's that footage that they came out with. Sure. Where Riho's nine years old. Sure. And I think that's the part that bothers more people more than anything. It's just that you kind of did this as you're a child and they won't and there's the whole argument of grooming, but that just tells you the how wait, are you how, talking about the match? Yes, the match. I that's not Riho. Is it? Is it not? Because no, somebody that's said that's, a, a, that's that's not Riho. That's that's a different that's a different woman who has done some pro wrestling. Um but yeah, that's not that's not Riho. I forgot. I thought somebody's. Oh no, it's because they, that girl looks so much like Riho. That's probably what it was. Right. And if somebody um, she's it also younger than Riho. I'm 
fairly certain she's younger than Riho. Oh no, she is. That's why. That's why I started thinking yeah. about it. Just like this isn't right, but you know what? It does look like her, so I, yeah. I may buy into it. But that, but that's, but that's the whole thing. <laughs> no, that's not Riho. Um, yeah. But like, see, have you watched the match with the nine-year-old? Yes. Like from a from a standpoint, I get where they were going with it. I get where they were going with it. It's a and. It wasn't. It wasn't an actual match per se. He did try to do as much to keep it as safe as possible. He kept it extremely safe. <laughs> yes, but I think the fact that, that people are bothered at the fact that a grown man is having a match with a child, I think that's sure. probably what's what's bothers more people. Although I gotta say, I really don't want to hear Jim Cornette talking about what behavior is and is not appropriate. <laughs> I I I really I don't I just don't because we know we all know the deal with Jim Cornette we all know about his hot tub we all know about this. Oh no, yeah, yeah, I, he's no, he's no saint. I, that's the problem. That's what makes it even it's funnier. It's not just he's not a saint; he's a predator. <laughs> Jim Cornette is one of the bad people in wrestling, and while he has some really while he has a, a deep knowledge of of the sport and a clear love for it, I really don't want to hear Jim Cornette talking about morality. Oh no, and and that part like I I, I tend to tune him out because yeah he's done he's done enough unfortunately to warrant to warrant not him not being listened when it comes into that. Which yeah. it's one of the reasons that bothered me like when he he goes into it like I get it, I get it from. A standpoint because he doesn't it Riho's just like his mascot overall to his yeah. overall attitude towards women's wrestling, which is that yes, women's wrestling should should be on the undercard and unless unless you look like Charlotte or Rhea Ripley, it should which be on the insane. undercard. You should not do anything that the men do because I think one of his famous things is like, oh, the girls are using potatoes, the guys what I have to use now. Takes a glass and just like, uh, um, I one one thing I yelled out when I heard that's like, there's such a thing as called proportions to strength. Yeah, and I I am also just really bothered by his by his general like I agree with you his general orientation towards women's wrestling is is offensive. <laughs> yeah, it it is it, it is in a way I'm just like dude like it's 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 moved on to that point it's moved on. It's no long. It, you're not gonna get that part of it. Like it's, I I always call him the old man yells at cloud of wrestling, because yeah. that's one of the things where he feels <laughs> like he just yells at clouds, even though like a lot of the things that he says, particularly when it comes to AW, are right in certain aspects. But and the they women's are. wrestling, it's not one of them. Un- unfortunately, like he also, while there's while he has some valid technical critiques, he can't go that long without one of those old man yelling at a crowd moments. Sonny Kiss was a really good example of that. Sonny um, Kiss, yeah. Sonny Kiss was If just, you remember yeah. his, his comments about Sonny Kiss and saying that they need to go back to a drag review or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, just completely and utterly over the line and unnecessary. Yeah. Um, he was made uncomfortable by something that wasn't for him, and he had to run his mouth about it. Um. I don't know. I, I I think he has been a poor force in wrestling overall. 
Oh no, it, it has been in a certain aspect. Like you let your personal tastes get in the way of your technical critiques, but luckily I'm able to look at the technical critiques and know what you're talking about. True. And and, and that part of it is I wish that's why I wish Kenny like Kenny, I wish you would do the same because the way you reacted when somebody criticized you mm-hmm. and then you decided to tweet that oh you're holding this child like a predator when it was a yeah. guy's daughter. And just like yeah. And then instead of when he got told that, instead of apologizing, he doubled down. Well, I mean, not to defend Kenny for poor behavior because he should know better, but Jim Cornette has been going after him for years and has been going after him with, you know, some pretty specifically coded language on top of that. You know, the, the fact that Jim Cornette consistently refers to Kenny Omega as twinkle toes Mm -hmm. and refers to what he's doing as ballet, which on the surface, I get why you would say that, but in combination with Cornette's comments about gay wrestlers and trans wrestlers in the past and Kenny Omega having been out as bisexual for years, that starts to feel a whole lot like Jim Cornette taking a shot. And you know, I, I have a lot of trouble faulting Kenny Omega for eventually losing his cool. You know, should he have not been provoked? Sure. But who doesn't eventually get provoked at some point? Especially when they're being provoked by somebody who, you know. Well, yeah. Somebody that like aspect, Jim Cornette. <laughs> yeah. And that aspect that, like, I understand. I understood that part. But then he brought him into it. That's the bad part of it. It's yep. like, not only did you double down on something that you didn't need to double down on. You would have, right. people that were left him alone and you would have said Kenny took the high ground and people would have respected you for it. I, I then, much prefer Sammy Callahan's response to being angry at Jim Cornette than Kenny's. <laughs> yes. At that point, yeah, just add Jim to a conversation and yeah. then and then when he, and then when he finds out that Jim's talking, then it's like, oh, I apologize. Uh, people are recovering from COVID. Like, oh, Jesus Christ. I'm like, no. No, Kenny. Have, no. have right. you and seen this the video in- of Sammy of Sammy Callahan spitting on Jim Cornette? Oh yeah, I know. I know that one. <laughs> I know that one really, really well. Like Jim, yeah. we have to admit, Jim has burned a lot of bridges. He has. He's burned a lot of bridges, um, and that's one of the things that he that he's known for. Like, yeah, he's gonna say things that are gonna be stupid, and unless you know his full history. Mm-hmm. You you know not to really discount a lot of what he says. The problem, right. unfortunately, what's happening, and this is why, like I bring it in specifically to the AEW discussion because obviously that's his biggest target. Is that at the end of the day, you have? I've always said that the, at least the American fan base in wrestling these days, is divided into like three major sects. Mm-hmm. You have WWE fans who insulate themselves in just in WWE. They don't know anything else but WWE. They won't, when they introduce for Balor, they don't know that he's Prince Devin. Or right. Seth Rollins, they don't know that he's Tyler Black, which, which WWE took advantage of. If you watch some of their specials, formerly known as, like Ford Bailey, yep. formerly known as Davida Rose, you learn from it, but you learn it from the WWE side. Right. You don't learn it from, in Bailey's case, you don't learn it from Shimmer. In Seth Rollins' case, you don't learn it from Ring of Honor. 
True. And unfortunately, that they those fans insulate themselves so they won't know anything else. And WWE being a cultural institution mm-hmm. kind of helps them in that manner. Right. The and other stay third, siloed. Yep. And then the other third, they're anti-WWE things. The, mm-hmm. And to me, it's like they don't care what it is as long as it's not WWE and the degree to what they're willing to let other things go, it falls into it. And they'll fall in love with whatever new promotion they think could take down WWE. AW is obviously the current darling right now. Right. Before it used to be New Japan. And mm-hmm. before that, and before that TNA, and before that New Japan. Mm-hmm. All, going all the way back to WCW. Going back, yeah, to WCW. A lot of them were some, yeah, some old WCW fans that still stuck around. And do the the only difference between them is the degree to which you're willing to excuse other behaviors by other companies. Right. As long as it's not WWE. Like I find it really, really hard to have an MOW fan try to defend <laughs> uh, try to defend themselves when it comes into contracts. Where and you know, I like MLW. I have gone to quite a few MLW shows when they come through Cicero Stadium um, just outside of Chicago because it is one of the most fun wrestling shows you can go to. It, it, and it feels like you're back in the 1970s. It's mostly bleachers. It's in, a, it's in this place called Cicero Stadium that mostly has amateur boxing and basketball. <laughs> um, and it's just, it's always a great raucous show. There's always the same four old Mexican ladies smoking in the front row and security coming over constantly telling them they can't smoke. You're always going to get something weird happening. It's always going to be a good time. And it is one of the loudest, most over the top crowds I've ever seen. Um, That said, it's not, it's not a good company. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's that's one of the things that in their lawsuit that they just, they just launched is Mm -hmm. just, I'm just Bless like their hearts. I'm just like okay, yes. On the surface, yes. WWE does want to act like a monopoly. WWE does want to act like they're the only game in town. That's true. But you guys have contracts that that would put the NFL to shame. Uh huh. And like you can't, you don't have a ground leg to stand on when it comes into this. Because you notice it, then you don't have impact. Hmm. Like saying like we cited MLW, you don't have GCW saying we cited MLW, and because they know where it is, but that's the thing. Yeah. But that's the degree. Well, that's I mean, part of it too is GCW just doesn't care. GCW is is very happy to to wear Cornette's outlaw mud show uh, comment as a badge of honor. Oh no, yeah, oh, no. they'll wear that. Yeah, they're they'll wear which that I love too. about them. Yeah. And well, there's a way good way to look at it, but I want to go back to this something because yeah. that's what I mean, like the degrees to which they're anti WWE fans into it. Right. Well, unfortunately, it's just not toxic. Yeah. And unfortunately, what's happened now is now you have this the third that didn't really it was smaller, but it has grown exponentially. Mm-hmm. That should be called the cult of cornet. That yep. It's just a group of people that 
okay, you hate all the other federations because it's not back like in the 1960s, 1970s and everything, but that was never going to happen anyway. Technology was going to get kill hit kayfabe one way or another. But they have their show. They have NWA. There's a place for you now. <laughs> yes. I, I actually think that's one of the things that I love most about the state of wrestling today is that anything you want, you can go and get it. Anything you want, it's there for you. And if you want to completely immerse yourself in it, you can. And if you just want to dip your toe in, you can. I watch a couple of death matches a year. That's all I have the stomach for, but I like a couple. Yeah. Um, I like comedy wrestling. I like AEW. I like tiny indies with guys doing ridiculous stuff in a small hall, <laughs> you know, and you can get this stuff. You can get all of these different things. I don't understand the fighting about it. <laughs> oh, no, that's the, that's a part of it. And that's where, that's what I really want to dive into because, yeah, because I feel like in a ways, and and this has been very bad in the sense, and I could I could literally put on Twitter, um, go on my phone and put on Twitter, mm-hmm. and put in AEW ratings on it. Yep, and it's and just, just thousands. See, yeah, and you you just see like one of the circus of hell as far as discussion, <laughs> yes. because you have to sit here and listen to people argue about ratings. Because <laughs> okay. Yes, if you want to look, like I said, if you want to look at ratings in a certain aspect of it, and this is one of the things I I do have to really, really chastise Tony Khan for is you focused on one aspect of the numbers that you got told is important. And now you've lashed onto it to the point where in your previous, when you went to war with Fox News, where they weren't really talking about him. They were talking about his dad. And the Jaguars, really mostly. They should, they should. I would really like it if wrestling journalists, the big ones, you know, Meltzer and Sapp and guys like that, if they just stopped reporting the ratings. I think it would go a long way towards cleaning up some of the animosity. There's really only about five or six people who have to care about the ratings. You've got yeah. Tony, you've got his dad. You've got whoever is in charge of programming at TNT and, and TBS. And we've reached basically the end of the list. <laughs> like, that's it. Those are the only people who need to be concerned about the ratings. For everybody else, we're arguing over things that we have no influence over, don't understand, and that don't matter to us. Yeah. And because there's, okay, a lot of this mainly contradictory when it comes into it. Because if you look at, if you look at AEW's numbers, from 2019 to 2021. You can't deny that there's a level of growth. Sure. You cannot deny that there's a level of growth into it. At the same time, it, it the argument also exists that in the three months that they signed CM Punk, that they signed Brian Dang, that they signed mm-hmm. Ruby Soho, Adam Cole, and they all debuted within a month of each other. Mm-hmm. They're like, if you want to look at their overall ratings, yeah. In the three months since, their numbers have gone back down to what their base is. But that's, but that's probably because you oversold a little bit too much. I, I put it out on Twitter, actually. 
that I said, like, if there's anybody, if it happens and somebody makes an honest rise and fall of AEW documentary out there, not one that's made by WWE, which you know it's going to be completely from WWE's point of view. Somebody's going to look into a little bit different. I wonder how much they'll focus on. And this is probably going to be one of the biggest regrets in 2021. How much CM Punk's return was overvalued when it came to the general public? Well, I, I think part of that is that living in Chicago, it seemed like CM Punk's return was being honestly valued. In, in places with strong, large wrestling followings, the way AEW was able to sell out tickets here, it, was, it made no sense. They sold out the United Center six or seven times in three weeks. It was ridiculous. <laughs> and the United Center is not a small venue. This isn't a VFW hall. This is you know where the Bulls and the Blackhawks play. Um, but I have always felt that when we're talking about ratings and when we're talking about this battle of AEW versus WWE, it's always been based on a lie. AEW is not a competitor to WWE. No. They're, comp- they're competing for talent, sure, but they're putting out very different products. WWE is largely a licensing company. <laughs> WWE is there to sell T-shirts and targets, toys to kids, and content to major media distributors. That's what WWE's job is. And Vince McMahon knows it. You know, Vince McMahon has been very, very good at turning pro wrestling from something that largely makes money from house shows into something that uses television to advertise products. Um, And I don't think he's wrong for doing it. You know, he's not doing anything different than what most media companies strive to do. Um, And he's done very well at it to the tune of millions of viewers a week. Yeah. AEW is kind of like the biggest indie in the world. AEW is there to show off impressive wrestling and to make a lot of money from a small group of people. Now, AEW doesn't need to have the ratings that Raw or SmackDown has because they're not trying to be WCW and take down WWE. They just need to continue touring, do well enough to stay on TV, and keep making the modest gain that they're interested in making so they can put out the product that they want to be putting out. Yes. Um, it's why I always laughed when people called AEW a t-shirt company. WWE is definitely a t-shirt company. When you see kids 10, 11, 12 years old with wrestling merchandise, it is always WWE. For years, it was John Cena. Now it's largely the New Day, a little bit of Roman Reigns. That's their bread and butter. And they're telling stories for those kids. And that's fine. AEW is largely serving a different market. (laughs) And that's fine too. And I agree with that. I agree with that front and two. That's why I say that's why I say that both companies can thrive. But I I really do wish because unfortunately I agree with you. Like People like Alvarez, Meltzer, Sapp, Mm-hmm. If they did less reporting on the ratings, and over and especially to me, and this is and this this is why I mean, like somebody told Tony Khan a specific number 
that is important in one aspect, and he's latched on to it. Report the overall ratings, okay, but quit reporting the demo. Well, I mean, I don't think reporting either of them is important because oh. overall ratings are only really important to advertisers. The demo is only really important to the specific advertisers that you're going after. The demo is important to AEW because AEW is a product aimed at the demo. <laughs> That's why it's important. That's why it, why it got launched into this big thing is that if you're looking for advertisers that are trying to sell stuff to people who are 14 to 40, then you need to show that those are the eyeballs you have on your show. That, that that's part I agree with. That's the after. Yeah. Like, and no, that's the part I agree with. <laughs> that's the part I agree with. Like, I understand where he's getting into that area because when you look at WWE's like core group, it is an older audience. Right. But, but the part of it to me that bothers, and this is probably why like I said, I agree, it either just report the overall or don't report it at all. Is you can't make this be the Monday Night Wars. Correct. You cannot make this be the Monday Night Wars because it is an entirely, entirely different scenario. Right. When the Monday Night Wars happened, WCW was part of, at the time, Time Warner's portfolio. Mm -hmm. They had a vested interest right. in making sure that Nitro succeeded, even though part of that company, and I still feel that's this, that like, this is like me, little peon, my own personal opinion, there's still probably a section of Warner Media now that wants absolutely nothing to do with wrestling. Right. It's and, love row. Yeah. And in many ways, yeah, you like I said, at that time, Time Warner, they had a vested interest in making sure Nitro succeeded. Right now, Warner Media, they don't really have a, a real vested interest in making no. sure that Dynamite succeeds. If it does, it's fine. Right. But if it doesn't, it doesn't really hurt them bottom line because guess what? It's it's Warner Media. And they just and they just got tickets to the NFL. You just added them another night that they can focus on the NHL. Well, and I think you have, <clears throat> I, I think you have an issue happening too, in that part of why a a segment of you know wrestling fandom is so invested in AEW failing is that I think you have a lot of wrestling fans that are embarrassed that they like wrestling. You have a lot of wrestling fans that are really sensitive, especially older fans, that are really sensitive to the idea that wrestling's fake that are really sensitive to the idea that people don't, that people are going to be laughing at it, that are really sensitive to wrestling being seen as a farce. And then you have this new indie community, which is largely what I think AEW is aiming at, which doesn't mind seeing a wrestling show and a drag show on the same bill. Mm -hmm. you know, that will go to an indie show that is, both that's you know drag wrestling match drag wrestling match i've been to this show it's great but like you have i love it it's 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 great and i think there's a lot of similarities between wrestling and drag but there is a certain segment of the wrestling population that would be ready to jump my ass for saying that out loud and they're embarrassed and aew is a company that doesn't really care they've got a guy who dresses up like a dinosaur they're doing backflips it there's a strong argument to be made that what they're doing 
shows wrestling not to be a wannabe combat sport, but shows it as performance art that puts wrestling much more into the zone of gymnastics or pairs figure skating than into the zone of King's Road, King of Pro Wrestling, Strong Style, you know, Gracie Killer. <laughs> you know, there's, I think there's a segment of, of the wrestling fan base that really is, is mad that we no longer have people thinking that Bruiser Brody might eat your face. That's mad that we don't have another Sakuraba out there showing MMA who's boss. Even though Sakuraba didn't really do that, he just had the Gracie's number. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't storied in MMA. He just beat the guys who were storied. Yeah. Um, he he, he was a poly Ayala. He was a poly Ayala. Right. And I, I think that's part of the problem here. And the reason I think it's not really about wrestling purity is if it was about wrestling purity, Josh Barnett's blood sport would have enormous ratings. <laughs> that would be GCW's highest selling product. If this was really about the love of technique and storytelling and psychology, have you watched any of the blood sport? It was Josh Barnett before it was Barnett. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, but, I watched it and I understood it. Yeah. Like, okay. He understood the psychology and that right. aspect to it. The problem, right. the, the problem, unfortunately that they have is MMA exists. And yes. unfortunately, you're going to be compared to MMA. Like you're always going to have this argument where people are like, oh, you want me to believe Seth Rollins is real? You want me to believe Rollins is real? Make it real. Like, okay, this is, and, and this is what I tell people, this is what happens if you try to make wrestling real. You're not going to have Monday Night Raw every week. You're not going to have SmackDown right. every week. You're not going to have Dynamite. Right. At most, you're going to have a weekly, uh, a monthly event like the UFC mm-hmm. Which pretty much you have to look at the UFC because UFC stole the WWE's business model, right? And here's your pay per views. <laughs> yep. And take that aspect of it. You only have certain matches throughout the year. You're gonna have weight classes, but the problem is gonna be, you're, you know, unfortunately, the problem is gonna be. That's not what Comcast buys when they. Right, signed that agreement with WWE or what Fox buys. So what Warner Media buys when they did with AW, they know what it is. They know what it's coming into, and I agree. Like there is a section of the wrestling fan base that is embarrassed in many ways, right? To going into it because right now you have two polar extremes. You have the older generation that does wish that you could go back to Ric Flair and Steamboat or. (laughs) in a steel cage or did the days of the Bon Eriks or in that sense, Rick, Ricky steamboat, a man who never went for the high spots. Yep. <laughs> in that aspect. Yeah. You have those. And then you have the younger generation, which tends to be on the other polar extreme, which like they're fine with, they're fine with it being silly because mm-hmm. they understand that you don't have to pretend that it's real. Right. Well, and, and I think one of the, or sorry, go on. Well, no, I'll give you a good example of one of the things I'm actually looking forward to. It's, uh, you know, you know, Brian Zane, Wrestling with Regret? Yeah. I love the fact that he made his own title and now there's two wrestlers fighting over it. Yep. Gentleman Jervis is actually one of the best characters I've seen in a while. Gentleman Jervis is a great character. Yes. 
And it's just, it's like the nicest guy who just happens to be a savant in the ring. You know who else I think is a really good character and actually a much better wrestler than most people give them credit for? Effie. Yes. Yes. Because when I, when I have seen Effie work, I have seen Effie work in multiple contexts. Um, and I've gotten to see them live a bunch of times too. And when they're doing comedy matches, they're, they're funny. They're, they are genuinely hilarious. They are able to work a room, but they don't have to do that. You know, they do that sometimes for sure. But like Effie can also come out and do a death match, which is really tough to sit through and really visceral and very, very in your face and violent and does the thing a death match is supposed to do. And Effie can go out there and wrestle the old Southern wrestling style and make it look good too. Mm -hmm. All while packaging it into a character that is able to seamlessly move through. Like I, I, I think that he has just been brilliant, but I also think that he's done a very good job of opening up some of the silly wrestlers to dip their toes into more serious stuff. Yep. And um, as far as character work, you know who does that really well? Obviously, we're not seeing him because he has a broken leg. Danhausen. Oh, for sure. Dan Danhausen does sure. work really well, and he's not silly about it. Like one of the things I got introduced to Danhausen, I'll, I'll be honest, through through Jim Cornette because people paid Danhausen to send cameos to Jim Cornette. Yeah, and, yeah, I loved it, <laughs> and. Very, very well. Like his gimmick is like, I am evil because right. evil is making me money. So I will be more right. evil and therefore I will get more money. And like, it's like, it's logical. There's a means to an end. <laughs> and he has such a striking look. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, and I think that's something that, that wrestling, both AEW and WWE, this is, this is a problem, I think, with televised wrestling in general. You don't have guys that look like wrestlers anymore that in trying to make it more serious in one direction or another you don't have many of those big huge personalities kenny omega gets crap for being a big huge personality who looks like a wrestler big e manages to pull it off but you don't have a lot of those you know when's the last time we had an ultimate warrior when's the last time we had a vader when's the last time we had a you know, a Steiner brothers. When's the last time we had guys who looked, who had that catch of a look, who you saw them and you would remember them anytime you saw them after that. Yeah. Oh, Steiner's, no, Steiner's kid is. Oh yeah. Braun Breaker is going to be good. Yeah. Yeah. That, that kid is going to headline WrestleMania in the next two years. Absolutely. Well, I still think he has a problem with his height as far as Vince goes, unfortunately, but He's got a better chance. Yeah. And <laughs> he's the, got the pedigree at least. Yeah, he does have the pedigree. Like the fact that he's improved so much in three months is scary to me. But oh yeah. The 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 thing probably is is that I think a lot of it what has fallen into it is you fall into that template of just like, oh, you need to dress into this into this character in order to win. But you know, I, I this is what I tell people and when I point at that house and like you don't have to act like an 80s wrestler right. to have that motif. Like, 
look at this guy, look at how he sounds. Mm-hmm. And because I played, I played with one guy like one of Dan House's cameos. <laughs> and he went like so funny. He's like, no, it's like, no, he makes sense. Like he's like, right. he makes sense. Like he's evil because it makes him money. Of course he's gonna act like that if it makes him money. It's like, yeah, that's and that's unfortunate. And I agree, that's what's missing with a lot of wrestlers. And that's what right. and that's the bad part of it. When they try to, that's what I mean. They skew towards what they think MMA is going to be, and MMA is just like a palette, a template that the guys look into. Similar height, some tattoos, a little bit of advertising here and there. But unless you really knew them, unless you knew who they were, mm-hmm. you wouldn't be able to tell Jorge Masvidal from Conor McGregor. You wouldn't right. know who they were. Well, and that's one of the things, sorry, finish. No, 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 go ahead. I'll watch these. <laughs> that, that's one of the things that I really appreciate about Japanese wrestling is that one of the things that you see at Wrestle Kingdom is everybody is sporting, not everybody, but a lot of guys are sporting their new ring gear. A lot of guys have just had some new ridiculous over-the-top ostentatious ring jacket made and they're debuting it at Wrestle Kingdom. And you know who they are as soon as you see the jacket, even though it's completely different from the last time. They have these distinctive looks that just catch you. You know, mm-hmm. Dan Housen, you know that Dan Housen is Dan Housen every time you see him. Mm-hmm. Effie could completely change the outfit and you would know that it's Effie instantly. And I feel like we don't have enough of that. We don't have enough dusty roads, you know, because everybody wants it to make sense. Everybody wants it to wants the gimmick to to somehow work if you think of dusty Rhodes, nothing about his gimmick work you got this big fat guy with a poodle haircut talking like a pimp in a movie calling everybody daddy being the working man it was weird and that's why it stuck <laughs> he was strange and he was likable and he had personal charisma which oh. i think is part of why we still remember him today yeah well I, I, a lot of yeah, I, I, I admit, like one of the top, probably four or five best promos is the Hard Times promo. Sure, it's such a good promo, and it's so strange. No human being sounds and looks like that. <laughs> no, it doesn't, and that's and and nobody can carry it like Dusty can. And it's one of the things I wish Cody would understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cody, okay, like. Dustin, yeah, Dustin went in a completely different route from his father. Yep. He, he didn't try to be the likable work every day, man. He was able to embrace the more creative side of it. It's one of the reasons why he still has to paint half his face because people know he was most creative right. when he was Goldust. He had a and, look. <laughs> yeah. And that aspect to it. And it, he made it work. He made it work very, very well. Granted, a lot of it had to do like he they, uh, to be blunt, Terry, Terry Runnels aged like wine. <laughs> like, I've yep. seen the dark side of the ring. I'm just like, that. I'm like, I know how old Terry Runnels is, but damn. And, mm-hmm. but that's one aspect of it. But at the other end, Cody, like, Cody, like, he is one of the better workers in AEW. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you can bitch about like he's technically a free agent now. We all know he's going to be signed. Yeah, that's a work. 
Yeah, that, that's, that's a work so he can challenge for the belt because he said, as long as I work for AEW, I can't challenge for the belt. Now I'm a free agent. I can challenge for the belt. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a work. <laughs> well, what, if it winds up just being that way, it'll be fine. Like, But then just a whole lot of drama. But the whole thing about it is you're one of the better workers in AEW. You're, you understand some of the psychology of it because you learned it from Dusty. But you're not Dusty. You can't pull off the same stuff that Dusty was able to do because Dusty, yeah, was the everyday workman, the son of a plumber. You're not. You are the son of Dusty Rhodes. Nobody believes that you've had a hard life. I, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. I think Cody is one of the smartest characters in wrestling. And I, I think the character is more nuanced than most people give it credit for. Because having watched, having watched Cody for a long time, especially with the way he fit into the elite in Japan, Cody's character has always been a little bit of like a charismatic, underhanded liar. And I think part of what we're seeing with Cody right here and what I have loved is him so clearly casting himself as the hero and getting booed. And I think it's, I don't think he was trying to get over with the crowd. I really genuinely don't because he was over for a long time. And then he made misstep after misstep after misstep until the entire arena hates him. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, that's a piece of brilliance because he's got such a visceral reaction, despite being the hero in his own mind. And when he has that heel turn that he insists is never going to happen, it is going to be so sweet because the character is still going to think he's the face. The character is still going to think that he's the son of a plumber second generation, that he's Dusty Rhodes, even though everyone hates him. And I love it. I love it. This, uh, this, this is actually good because I stand in the completely opposite aspect of it. I, I, to me, and to me, in many ways, I feel like Cody, with the way he works, the way he workshops everything, mm-hmm. with the way he does things, I feel like in many ways, he doesn't view wrestling as the way his father, as the way his brother does. He views mm-hmm. it in many ways as a stepping stone. Me, okay, to me, Cody sees wrestling as, okay, this will be what I need to do until I have my foot in TV, until I have my foot in Hollywood, until I announce either my senatorial or gubernatorial run in Georgia. And is that true or is that the work? No, he's actually, he's actually involved, I think, in some Georgia politics. Sure. Mm-hmm. And, and he's in he's involved in the go big show yeah and that's the thing and that's one of the things that people don't like about cody like because the it's become the tnt title the formula's become pretty well cody gets the title mm-hmm. he has the series of the open challenges mm-hmm. then the next big guy that they're trying to either debut when it came to brody lee god rest his soul yeah or if they try to rebuild in this case miro they haven't beat the beat the living shit out of Cody, mm-hmm. which conveniently falls around the same time that he has to do with the TV show. 
and then he comes back, he gets his revenge, and he gets a title back. And that does get tiring at a certain point. And yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's as much Cody, but I think it's it's Brandy to me, in many ways, <laughs> that gets into it because Brandy, in many ways, it's one of. Actually, I'll say I'll, I'll put it to I'll put it like this. Brandy is the main reason why people joke about Cody and Cody and her being cosplay Triple H and Stephanie. Yep. Even to the point where if you look at Brandy's technically executive office job, yep. it's the same title as Stephanie. I think that's by design. I really do think you're getting worked. I'm sorry. <laughs> No, but I, but I would really like I would really see it because they've done this for years. Mm-hmm. They've done this for years, and it gets grading to a point, and the the audience has turned on Brandy. Like they, well, they never really they never really were on Brandy's side from the Nightmare Factory and things like that, or the Nightmare right. Collective, which I never really they, got. Does they it have are potential? So grading, though. Yeah. The thing is, the Nightmare Collective had potential. Like, sure. If you just kept them separated, and if they just want to introduce Luther in a different way, it could have worked. Yeah. But, but the problem is, you expect when it, the Luther thing, like when they introduced Luther, they expected everybody to know who Luther was. But obviously, right, they which didn't. nobody was going to. Yeah, nobody, <laughs> nobody, nobody was, was going, going to. Nobody was going to, and. It took a long time for it to get the match that people who knew wanted to see, which was Luther versus Jimmy Havoc. And it only yep. happened after after all the allegations against Jimmy Havoc came out. Right. So it was it was soured by that. Yeah. But there's there's actually there's I I can see where people are coming from when it comes into it, because it is very, very hard to work people mm-hmm. in the way that you can see. I give you credit, like in the sense of the fact that you can see how Cody can work somebody into that aspect of believing into it. The problem is you can work. The problem is if you work somebody too much, mm-hmm. you're never going to be able to turn them back. Right. Well, and I don't think Cody ever wants to go back. I don't. Th- I don't. I do not think that Cody works well as a babyface. I think they're setting things up that the whole storyline with Dan Lambert, who everyone hates, and he's got, you know, two very dislikable wrestlers, you know, very good heels working with him. I think the whole storyline with Dan Lambert saying things that everybody thinks about Cody is brilliant. And I do think Cody's going to take the belt off of Hangman, and I think he's going to use the pedigree to do it and really crank this up to an incredible level actually that 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 does present me a good question actually do you think that hangman exudes like the at least the field at least with him with the belt of being a world champion no but he's so damn likable um although i will say this i think those two matches with danielson elevated him massively um i think prior to those 
he the kind of aw shucks anxious millennial cowboy bit as much as i liked it i really didn't buy it as the world as a world champion but if he comes back in strutting after having forced danielson to a 60 minute draw and then taking danielson down especially with how danielson bled in that match i think there's a very good chance he shows up a different guy i think he he has the chance to exude more now that he has beaten the, you know, the person who's been hyped up as the best. Yeah, there, there was a lot of missteps to me, like when they came to, when they came to Adam Page, because, yeah, you kind of knew, you knew from the press conference when they announced AEW that that that's who they were going to wind up putting the belt on among the Yes, you knew it was going to be. I had no problem with putting the belt on Jericho first because you need to establish the belt. Right. And Jericho had the most legitimacy among your staff. And then they set it up where it made sense that Kenny got it. So hangman would have a story. And in, in one way. Yeah. But then, and this is probably the part where I think they, they went off the rails a little bit when they put him with the dark order. Mm-hmm. And especially at the time of the Dark Order sign table, like right after, almost not too soon after Brody Lee's death. Yeah, and you have this ongoing question that who's going to be the new leader of the Dark Order, and you suddenly have Hangman Page hanging out with them. Just like, oh, is he going to be the leader? Is he the pseudo leader? But- yeah, I just I feel like they are misbooking Dark Order. Like they they have really lost lost the thread on that since Brody's death. Does it feel... Is, well, no, say again? Oh, I was just going to say, especially since, especially since the, you know, Kings of the Black Throne thing that Alistair Black is doing has completely eclipsed any space that Dark Order had for their cult concept. <laughs> yeah, in that aspect, yeah. Because to me, well... To me, what the Dark Order was supposed to be was supposed to be a cult. And in all honesty, if I could rebook it, I would have had I would have had the obvious thing happen, where Matt Hardy would have been the exalted one. Right. It worked. Like you had this crazy guy, right, who has already built his world around his compound and drones and Senor Benjamin, with and, a little bit of a comedy angle to it. Yep, yeah. and then. He works really well, and then you, you can see him leave the cult. With yep. Brody Lee, okay, well, the first, when Brody first came out into the aspect, I'm like, okay, it can work. He showed fire. Yeah, he did the standard anti-Vince anti McMahon logo mm-hmm. promo. And they did, then they leaned on that too much. They yep. just, and it didn't make sense. Like, okay, if you're cold, why is this guy wearing a suit? And then the other guy's just walking around wearing masks. Yep. It and didn't like, work. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, Although, ever since... Yeah? No, go ahead. Ever since... No, and ever so unfortunately, since his... Unfortunately, since his death, unfortunately, there really wasn't going to be anybody that was going to be able to fill those shoes oh. and then have them lean 
in that direction, unfortunately, because at that point, and this is this is where the dark order is to me at this point. It's a group of guys that they really they can't break up, even though they should. Yep. Because I think the only way you could bring them back is Bray Wyatt. Yeah, it would it would it would be Rotunda, but I'm and that's the bad part. I don't think Rotunda's gonna is gonna come back. No, I don't. I agree. At, at least for a few years, like he's gonna he's gonna explore Hollywood. He's gonna explore the horror genre, mm-hmm. and in all aspect to it, like when I when I found out that they released them, when WWE released them, my first thought is into his head is like, yeah, he needs it. He needs a mental yeah. break. Like you saw yeah, he's how he reacted at WrestleMania. Yeah, he's done. Yeah. And just let him be alone. And then people are like, no, he's going to go to AEW. He's going to return. Like he doesn't really need to. That's the thing. Like he, he has developed a character and a mythos mm-hmm. about his creativity to such an extent that he doesn't need wrestling anymore. And from a storytelling standpoint, I don't think there's enough room at the table for him in Dark Order now that you have the House of Black. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I really do think that Aleister Black came in and took that space in a way that has been very successful. Like the story that they're telling with Aleister Black and now that they've brought in Brody King and Pack and the way they're pointing to bringing uh, Julia Hart over um, like it's it's just working well and they have a look and a sense and a scene like it just you know it, it clicks as that kind of dark and scary thing that you want in the background of wrestling since Taker yeah that part oh no that part I understood and that's I think luckily with with Black he's able to take what the WWE gave him what they were going to do last him with the father character Mm-hmm. And he molded it to what he is now in AEW, where he didn't have to make that drastic of a change. He didn't have to go fully back into being Tommy N. Nope. Instead, like, okay, I'm this character who was Tommy N. Mm-hmm. Went into this other space where it feels like a void. I became Aleister Black out of it. And now Malachi Black is this misformed mm-hmm. piece of art that's not quite Tommy N and not quite Aleister Black. And it eventually the darkness that is Aleister Black may eat him. That's what I love. Of, I love about the makeup that he has. Yes. You see it at like every he, other show is growing. He brings along, now that we have Brody King introduced, a big man, a hoss, which AEW desperately needs a few of. Yes. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with Brody King, but the two of them together are great. Brody King on his own is great, and Brody has gotten into great shape. Um, oh yeah, he's he's a lot he's in a lot better shape than he was before. Yes, and, and you yeah. can see it when he's working. You've been able to see it in the New Japan Strong stuff that he's been doing. He just he has a lot more gas. Uh, he's yeah. a lot more nimble. He's stronger. Like this is yeah. going to be a great tag team. Yeah, and I like I understand like the first time you introduce, yeah, you're gonna get Cornet's reaction to it. Like, oh, this guy looks flabby into it. Like, then, but then when I tell people, like, no, look, I've seen him be flabbier. I've seen uh-huh. him 
unless he is actually in much better shape now than what he was before. It also, just I don't want to hear anybody bitch about flabby wrestlers. You had Stan Hansen. Stan Hansen was never ripped and was a terrifying man. You had Vader. You had every other wrestler in the 70, in the 60s and 70s were big flabby guys. You had Dusty Rhodes. There's a place in wrestling for, you know, big old barrel-shaped guys who look like they could throw a hog. <laughs> Hard, like, I'll give you a good example. Harley Race. Harley Race, yes! You know, and even, even a guy as impressive as Andre, Andre was an existing idea that got scaled up. You know, he, he worked and looked and dressed like a lot of guys that were 6'2", 350 pounds. Yeah. Earthquake, you had John Tenta. You have all kinds of huge guys that were awesome in wrestling. There's, oh, there's space for the big old hoss. I know, no, that part there is now, now, now reminding me of Tenta. Oh, man. Yeah. It was so misused in WCW. Mm-hmm. God damn. Well, just like Keith Lee got misused in WWE again. Yeah, and that that, got that a, angers me so much. That angers me so much. No, it, this is the part of it aspect to it. Okay, with John Tenta, okay, you have this big guy, mm-hmm. a proud LSU alum. He has the damn tiger in his sleeve, and you turn him into a shark. And you go Why? as far, and then you go as far as convincing him to cover up the LSU tattoo with a yep. shark. And that part, I'm just like, you got to go that aspect to it. And then with WWE with Keith Lee, okay, the only Talk way about I can who exudes charisma, yeah, the only way I can excuse it is. If you put somebody and you show them Keith Lee the first time without him speaking. And if you put him, for example, next to, uh, if you show him next to like a middle-aged housewife from mm-hmm. Columbus. Right. Who's never seen a guy, I guess. She's going to be scared of him because the guy's huge and he has, and yep. he has a natural mean bug. Mm-hmm. And then you, oh, and then he opens his mouth. And then you hear this eloquent, thoughtful speaker. Uh huh. And I guess that's the part of it where Vince never connected. It says, like, he should be a hoss. He should be talking like Butch Reed. Like, no, he doesn't need to talk like Butch Reed. The scarier, the scarier giants are the ones that, can, that are thinking. Right. You, you, he's got this, this like gentle giant mean about him. And yeah. then the match starts. The, the moment where he where he bounced Adam Cole into like the third row on NXT. Yep. That pounce, that alone, you could have just replicated on Raw or SmackDown. You, you just, and that's how you introduce him. You just bring him in like that. Take any little guy, you bring him in like that. Then you give him a match with Ricochet to show off that this big man can move and keep up. And then you start booking them with other big guys. Like you book them like a hoss and you've got a, a list as long as your arm for him to go through. Now you saw the Lesnar moment at the rumble where yeah. even Lesnar who does not work hard for a lot of people. Oh, no, he, saw him. Lee. Yeah. he saw him, he sold him and he worked with him. Yeah. He saw him like, okay, yeah, I can buy you being the yeah. fuck out of me. 
yeah, big yeah. boy, was the comment that he said. And yeah. Keith Lee made Lesnar look a little smaller. He did. There's not a lot of guys who could do that. <laughs> yeah. And but you know, this is the I, I I know you said you don't watch a lot of WWE, but if you watched NXT, like when Keith Lee was coming in mm-hmm. and he was starting to challenge for the North American title, that's where, where yes. Roderick Strong had it. And this is when like the undisputed ever was really fucking with Keith Lee. And they got to the point where he was pissed off. Mm-hmm. And you don't hear like rage coming out of his voice. Right. Uh, out of Keith Lee's voice. You hear this, well, at least I'm not yelling, but you hear this quiet rage. Like, Roddy, come here. And <laughs> you hear it of his like, I, I yelled like, run, Roddy, Roddy, he's going to kill you. Yeah, this is your danger. <laughs> yeah. It's, and he's like, next week. That's out of mind. Next week. And just like, yeah. That's the part of it. I, I think what also hurt him is probably because he he came in in the Thunderdome. Yeah. And well, he, it also hurts him that Vince has never been good at characters that aren't stock. It's the same problem Big E has. Honestly, I think if Big E was somebody who was content to just shut his mouth and be the big dumb monster, he would have had the belt four or five times by now. Mm-hmm. But the fact that Big E brilliantly has this incredible personality that doesn't fit with what Vince thinks his body should be doing. I think has been an impediment in that company, unfortunately. Yeah. It, it has, it has in many ways, unfortunately. And that's, and that's ultimately what hurt me. I, I figured yeah. that his last chance was the Bearcat. And yep. And I understood where they were going with it. Okay. You bring the historical aspect to it. If you know the original Bearcat, that was a big boy. Yep. And it was a good callback. It was a good callback, but at that point, you already damaged him too much in the in the audience. Fortunately. And right. And then once he and then once you let him go, you fall into it. And honestly, I think he's one of those guys where he'll wind up working a GCW show, he'll wind up working a PW show. As much people as want to as many as people want to say that, oh, he'll wind up in AEW, I don't think he'll ever wind up in AEW. Because unfortunately, that COVID episode that he had, and yeah, the, and the fact that an irregular heartbeat came from it, he's not going to do much that anymore. He might just, he might retire after doing like the last, like one last PWG run. Yeah. And which would fit. And and he's a person that is creative enough where he can definitely go and do something else outside of wrestling. I mean, I suspect that Keith Lee could do commentary really well. Yes. He could definitely be an incredible manager. Um, you know, it's it's tragic if he can't work, if he can't wrestle anymore. Yeah. Um and I hope that's not the case for him. And honestly, after seeing Shibata come back, I believe anyone can work. Oh, no. and, and that aspect, yeah, I, I agree in that aspect. Right? Yeah, that's, but then that's also a traumatic physical injury. That's yeah. in that what Keith Lee is going to is something that's physiological, unfortunately. And well, I mean, for Shibata, there was some pretty significant physiological consequences. 
Um, you know, he had a lot of muscle wasting. He had significant weakness on one side of his body. Like there was, he had many of the symptoms of a stroke, even though that's not quite what happened. Yeah. Um, you know, so for him to have been able to come back from that, if you saw pictures of him a couple of years ago, he looked rough. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. It, it gave me dynamite kid vibes. Unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, when he showed up at Wrestle Kingdom, he looked he looked 10 years younger than he did even a couple of years ago. Yeah. And but I, I think one the reason why I say it is because it, it is the heart. The heart is something that unfortunately yeah. is uncontrollable. And you don't want to have a hand gather situation. No, absolutely not. He shouldn't work if it's an impediment to his health. Yeah. And that's that's what I feel like is probably gonna wind up into it because and luckily, like he's smart enough where he can also do something. He's not, I'll put it, he's not Braun Strowman, where, where unfortunately, wrestling after strongman competitions is all that he had. Yep. So he had to accept the fact that he had he he's eating a lot of humble pie right now, having to work the indies. But yeah, in many ways, like that's the only thing he can do because yeah, he's. Like I said, he's a big guy. He's a strong guy, but unfortunately, you can you can only go back to strongman competitions for so long. Yeah. And well, he also hasn't been training to compete in those for a long time. And that's the kind of thing that requires a ridiculous amount of commitment. Yep, exactly. And so that's what I mean. Like he he's stuck having to try to have work with this. And Luckily, he's rebuilt a lot of bridges that he burned when he tweeted that I don't have to work the Indies. I work with the biggest company in the world. Yep. He's like, nope, now you do. Now you now you know what EC3 has to deal with. And it's smart that he's luckily he's doing it, but I'll, he's probably him. You know what I would probably want if it, if AW could actually do like a legitimate a legitimate trade with like WWE or Impact have Braun wait he goes by his real name Adam Sure now so have Sure go with W Morrissey and trade them to AEW for Wardlow and Lance Archer. Lance Archer? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, Lance Archer. Um, See, I don't think I don't think Sure would do well in AEW. I really don't (coughs) because there's not one, there's not the, the guys for him to compete with and two I think one of the one of the advantages of just the average size of a wrestler being smaller in AEW is that you can have a wider range of guys. One of the downsides is that the true monsters you kind of can't have. I feel like Lance Archer is about as big as you can get. Um, otherwise, there's just so few guys that can work with them. Oh, yeah. No, well... Yeah. Uh, how the how the hell are you supposed to book? How the hell are you supposed to book MJF against Braun Strowman? You just can't. It doesn't work. Um, Actually, 
actually, I can think of it. I can think of a way. Okay. Have MJF act like, like, the, like the scared heel, like the chicken heel, like what he's doing now with Punk. Right. Do that aspect into it, but have sure just be the brute. Don't have him thinking. Just have him go full board trying to attack. And then MJF finds something like the diamond ring that he has and land a couple of shots at him or do a low blow with the ring or hit him okay. behind the head with it. And then you technically then you technically win from it. But that only that only goes so far. I think right. the main reason I would probably want for the trade, and this is probably more for Wardlow and Lance Archer's benefit. As much as I like Wardlow, and he does exude that confidence that I'm just going to powerbomb you and into the center of the earth like he did Punk. Right. He still needs a good amount of work. Right. Yeah. He, he needs more reps, and in particular, he needs more reps where, he, where they're not squash matches. Yeah. Where he's, where he's having to work for it. And, um, and, and, and he's Impact, not going to get that in AEW. He's not. But with Impact, you have you, PCO just signed to them. So yes. you have a guy in that fact, have, he would definitely have that. Yeah, he would, ha- he would have that. And they would work with him a little more because imagine, imagine Warlow versus Willie Mack. <laughs> that would be a great match. That would be an incredible match. Yeah. And that would work really well. And like I said, with Archer, it works it works in different ways. Like he's he's a little bit more mobile, but he can get with somebody that's probably a little bit more safe or somebody that knows how to work around big guys in there. Kim and Moose could probably work together pretty well. Yeah. And like I say with with Sherry, yeah, it's gonna be tough for him to do, but the person that I want to probably see benefit most is Morrissey. If he's yeah. rebuilt his life the way he says he has rebuilt it, then he does deserve a second chance in the, nas- in the real national spotlight. And I don't really think him going back to WWE and then going back to being big cast would be ideal. Yeah. But that depends on what I- they want to do. Now, I I did like when you had some back and forth between Impact and AEW. I just don't think it worked out well. Like, I don't think they made the right choices. I don't think they moved the right people along. I don't think the Good Brothers were the right people to come in. No. Um, uh, well, the Good Brothers made a little bit of sense. when It made sense in the storyline. Yeah, it made sense um, in that type of the storyline. But the problem is you can't go full bore. It's one of the reasons why, like, when... When AJ Styles and Finn Balor had that match, when everybody was stuck in Saudi Arabia, and they had, and then they had that match, and then they did the two, they did the two sweet. Everybody knew what they were referencing, right? The problem is because New Japan, that's their property. You really, you really can't go full bore on it, right? And well, and they teased it. That was the part that bothered me. They teased it. They had Jay White show up and confront them all on impact for a while. They were talking about real bullet club versus fake bullet club. And then it all went away. Yeah. Well, to me, to me, that's new Japan's fault because yeah, new Japan decided to focus on building empire. 
Yeah. And you really can't do what the what happened with the Bullet Club with Empire. No. Because I understand no. what you're trying to do. Say again? They're trying to get rid of Bullet Club right now, I think. Bullet Club barely had a presence at uh, Wrestle Kingdom. You know, they were they were definitely very much in the background. They're pushing that, uh, what are they calling it? House of Torture or whatever, Evils Group, yeah. which is like a subunit of Bullet Club. And then you have Empire, which is doing all the stuff Bullet Club used to do. Um, they just... Yeah. New Japan just isn't very deep in Bullet Club right now either. Like the, they just don't have a, they don't have a lot of guys who could be A-listers. You know, it's it's a lot of mid card and low mid card guys. Yeah, um, Ishimori is great, but he's a junior. Jay White is great, but he's in the U.S. Uh, God is very good, but New Japan doesn't do a ton with tag belts, despite the fact that they have too many tag matches. <laughs> <laughs> But they're all six-man tags to tell you about the matches for next for the next evening. <laughs> yep, pretty much. Oh yeah, no, I I, I, I saw the run up for dynamite. <laughs> yeah. Ah, <sighs> oh, but okay. This is this is my problem with New Japan, and I understand why they did it. We can all agree they got blindsided by the bulk of the Buddha Club leaving. Yep, and. Because them leaving, especially at the time that they were leaving, right when you you were gonna make your statement in Madison Square Garden, mm-hmm. I don't that hurt them to a point. Bullet Club to a point where they can't rebuild it because right. that hurt that hurt Bullet Club. But for New Japan to have stumbled, and they definitely stumbled, I I can only lay so much blame. On the elite, because if you can't figure out how to make a company work, when you've got Okada, Naito, Tanahashi, Shingo Takagi, um, Ibushi, Kenta comes back, you've got Jay White. Like if you can't make it, Sonata, if you can't make it work with those parts, Will Osprey, Jesus, you know, if you can't make it work with those parts, that's on you. Yeah, and. The part about it, but the part about it is the reason why I say I blame New Japan for this is because okay, you don't have the clean power, the transfer power anymore, with, like you did right. with when Balor left, and you and you moved to AJ Styles, and then with AJ Styles you moved to Kenny Omega, and from Kenny Omega you technically moved to Cody, and then from Cody you moved to Jay White. Yeah, like you don't have that clean transfer power and what sold the what sold the butter club is they were the gaijin group they were the group of the non-japanese wrestlers that got together and just said new japan we own you right and they don't have and with empire you don't have that and i think the problem and i think the problem with all of that when you mentioned all of the people that you're able to rebuild from from it that was what that Madison Square Garden show was supposed to be. Right. Help them help introduce Okada, Naito, Ibushi, like Sonata. She introduced them to that size of an American army. Yeah. So the Although, next time we say again? People who were watching Bullet Club already knew Ibushi and Okada. Yes. 
but what sold them is remember it was supposed to be New Japan and Ring of Honor. Yeah. Unless and unfortunately, when it came to that aspect of the Butter Club, it was kind of like the Butter Club B team, led by Adam yep. Cole. Yep. So now, if you bring in the A team, they introduce like who this is who the A team is fighting, and that would have helped a lot when it came to New Japan. And also, is New oh, Japan's sure. and unfortunately, it's New Japan's ignorance of the outside. Wrestling world outside of Japan, because this is the same company that really thought that Will Ospreay was leaving them for NXT UK. They just didn't understand that there's no way. Um, well, I, I also think part of that issue is that New Japan really doesn't care as much about the foreign audience as the foreign audience thinks New Japan does. Um. <laughs> One of the things that I have noticed is just how bad the app is, the New Japan World app is. It's just yeah. poorly built. It's poorly supported. It's clearly an afterthought. You know, it's it's clearly like eh, most of our people are getting this from TV Ashae. Like this is just this is for you know the hundred thousand American subscribers we get that don't bring in that much money. Yeah. Um, oh, oh no, I agree. I agree in that front because well. Would you, like say, would you, if you're a company that has survived decades on just your Japanese audience? Right. And right. you just happen you to just have, to. yeah, and you just happen to have this 10-year period where the American audience started paying attention to you, and it grew enough where, yeah, you were planning to build a dojo here. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, much like, and this is what I always fall into it when it comes into New Japan, when people were telling me that New Japan was going to take over, it's like, really? Like, look how look how much luck WWE is having yeah. with the Japanese market. Like, yeah, New Japan can't take over. Like, you cannot, you cannot take over because there's just too much of a difference, too much of a different style going into it. And at the end of the day, yeah, there's going to be some pride into it. You're not going to, you're not going to want the, your top company in your country be from another country. Well, and New Japan also had zero interest in adapting for the U.S. market. They did a little bit with the New Japan Strong Show, which is the American show. But like one of the big differences is that it's not the same kind of product. The Japanese product like New Japan is the matches are much longer just overall across the board matches are longer the way they do storytelling is very different there are no vignettes the only promos or backstage comments you get are immediately after the match and they're not part of the shows they're attached like a day later they all get stitched together and put out separately Mm -hmm. um they're not weekly shows you know there's no like rhyme or reason to new japan's schedule because they're still running what is largely a touring schedule you know they're on tv like sports is on tv you know, yeah. It's not every Thursday at seven o'clock. Tune in to New Japan, <laughs> um, and they weren't going to change those things. They weren't going to move to seven-minute matches. They weren't going to move to having fewer tag team matches and warm-up and introductory tag team matches to sell the match for the next show. That's going to have singles. They weren't going to start doing vignettes in the ring. They weren't going to start having promos like they. 
they were going to do what they've always done. Um, so they were never going to take over here, which is fine. Yeah, which, which is perfectly fine, which is the same reason when, I tell, when you tell people, I, I know people were making fun like, oh, WWE shutting down their Japanese division. Like, like no, it's not fun. Like, they never could really adapt Japanese market because, no. first of all, okay, building an NXT Japan you would, you would literally have to buy a company, which is what they try to do. They tried to buy Noah, right? And you would have to build something with a lot of infrastructure because you're competing with companies that have been around for decades. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, WWE, yeah, they 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 won't go to Japan too often. So why, as somebody as a Japanese fan would I invest myself in an NXT Japan when I'm not going to see them in takeovers right when it comes into that aspect or if they're not going to come in like what are you going to do you're going to wait until one one of the person shines out and then they forget about it that's what's happening with NXT UK like they cannibalize a burden anybody who gets big gets gets moved and that yeah, it's happening right now. Tyler Bates, Tyler Bates is going to be the next one, but Pete Dunn move, Walter's moving, mm-hmm. and Dragonoff will probably move. He'll probably move with Bate. Yeah, but the only reason that but, Severn's probably not going with us because he runs his own promotion. And you know that guys aren't going that the the people that you love if they do move aren't going to do well. Aside from Shinsuke, what? Male Japanese talent has done well in New Japan. Oh, you mean WWE? Tajiri? (laughs) Who else do you have? There's they they got Kushida and didn't know what to do with Kushida. Kenta went over and got hurt. I get that, but like they just they don't use the guys well. No, Uh, with Kenta, it was it's a combination of him. It was a combination of him getting injured. And it, it's kind of like the same thing with Kyrie. He wasn't just, he wasn't really able to adapt right. to the U.S. Like he's right. spoken many times about how hard it was for him to right. speak English, like to learn English yep. in that front. Where with other people, it, it with other people, it's very different. You, you know when Neo Shirai can right. speak English fluently that it's gone into her area. And, but and that that's that aspect along with the injuries. Kushida, unfortunately, the the thing that happened with Kushida to me is the fact that of it that he came in as a cruiserweight right when unfortunately the people that were that would be investing in the cruiserweight division fell out of power. Yep. And that didn't help matters. And now, well, okay. The jacket time thing, it's it's funny, mm-hmm. but it's stupid at the same time. And it's also referencing a gimmick that most of the viewers have no connection to, yeah. never saw. Yeah, but and and that's you had to and that's take what most of his signature moves away. Most of his signature offense, most of the stuff that made Kushida Kushida, you can't do in WWE. That that's also yeah, that's also one aspect of it too. You it's, can't it's, do the drivers. You can't do the neck breakers. You can't do the flips. 
Yeah. It's kind of, well, it's kind of the same thing with Shinsuke. There's a lot of Shinsuke's offense that they really can't do. Well, yeah, Shinsuke had to soften up a lot. <laughs> yeah. There's that aspect into it. And, and with, you know how bad, how bad it got to a point? Because, okay, it was, who the hell did they have? Because remember when, when 205 Live was touring with the big shows? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And who was it like they, that they paired, that they paired oh, with Kenta you. near the end? I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. Oh, no. Yeah, it, it was Kazawa, Akira. Mm. Who, amazing, he's actually adapted pretty well. Yeah. He's adapted pretty well to the WWE way of doing things, even though he's now looked as a, as a foot ninja. But To jump back to something you said a minute ago about language, one of the things that I have really liked about what AEW has been doing recently Mm-hmm. is allowing Penta to do promos in Spanish. And yes. to do promos in Spanish in the ring, backstage, to let him work in Spanish. Because he, he does so well in it. You know, I, 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 they're, not, they're not subtitling like I would have preferred. You know, they've got Abrahantes next to him, and they've made that work. That's a funny gimmick. Penta says! Um, but I have really liked that they're allowing for that, which is something that I couldn't imagine ever seeing in WWE. It, it, well, let me think. Well, no, no, that's one of the reasons why I'm drawing it anymore, unfortunately. Because even though you could tell he tried, like yep. you, as, as somebody who was, was a Spanish speaker and in mm-hmm. English was a second language, even though, unless I really got drunk, you probably can't tell my Spanish accent, <laughs> but... It's tough. Like, it's tough in that front into it. And I understand from that front how tough it is to get into talking and having it that way. But there's just so much. There's just so much that it really hurt guys when it came into it. Like, with Andrade, it was that. It, it was that and the fact that when Selena got when Selena got released, it took away, like, the biggest anchor because Selena could talk her ass off. Well, I mean, for for Penta, it's a choice, though. His English is very, very good. Yeah. Um, like, I've talked to him at shows, and then also uh, there's video out there of him working in Germany, and for some reason they've got him speaking English in Germany. I have no idea why. But, like, his English is fine. But he would have no problem doing promos in English. He wants to speak Spanish. Yes. And they have well, adapted. They've let him do it, which I love. Well... <laughs> You know what it you know what here reminds me of in that aspect? Canelo Alvarez. Yeah. And because Canelo Canelo could speak English really, really well, but he didn't want to for a very long time in a public setting. And it's only been in the last couple of years where he's gone really, really comfortable into it, talking English. He'll still obviously he'll still talk Spanish. He'll still have the translators whenever we, when it comes to the fights. But he's a lot more comfortable during English. Penta, I don't think, has reached that at that point. And honestly, one of the things that probably prevents it is the fact that he wears the mask. Like, you kind of expect somebody like that and somebody that yeah. has cero miedo. Yes. That, that 
yeah, you should just only speak Spanish because speaking English then it doesn't it doesn't work. But it does I work. speak I speak virtually zero Spanish. You know, I can I can order at a restaurant and not embarrass myself, and that's about it. Like, and watching him cut promos in Spanish is still mesmerizing. Like it's something about the cadence and the way he moves and the emotion in his voice. Um that has always hooked me. Penta is actually part of why I got back into wrestling. Um, I had stopped watching wrestling for a number of years and then I got hooked on Lucha Underground where they just subtitled him and he got to go off and give long promos in Spanish. Um, and so I'm really happy to see Penta getting a national stage right now. Uh, but I, I think I think there's an opportunity there not just to to hook a Spanish speaking audience and to have a little bit more diversity on the show, but also if a guy wants to work in another language, they can still pull it off. So much of what they're communicating is nonverbal, you know, get some subtitles, have a translator in there. I think it's great. That's what, that's what worked well in Walter in NXT UK. He didn't speak a lot of times English. He was speaking yeah. Austrian. Yeah. But, and, but the subtitles are like, and the way he talks he just exudes authority. And and that's what, what Penta is. Penta exudes this level of charisma that you only see like people you only see from Mexican boxers in many ways. Like the way the way he talks about when it comes into the ring, like it reminds me of Eric Morales. It reminds me of Mark Antonio Barrera. Mm-hmm. Like guys that exuded quiet confidence. Like didn't have to be all out in that aspect, but you knew those are dudes not to mess with, even though they right. were literally 135, 130 pounds. Mm-hmm. That's what Penta exudes to me. And there is an opportunity there. That I and to me, that's one of the bad, that's one of the bad things that WWE has. And to be blunt, a lot of problems, luckily for WWE fans, a lot of pro- they understand also that. The vast majority, if not almost all of their problems, has one main source. Right. And right. They're, they're run by a crazy elderly sociopath. Yeah. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, it's only going to end two ways. It's either Vince is going to die on the road. Mm-hmm. Or he's going to sell the company. Right. One of those two things is going to happen. Yeah. And I know people are... I know people are like WWE's never sort of like no, you don't hire a corporate hatchet man like Nick Khan, whose sole job is to be a corporate hatchet man. Right, they're trying to figure out how to sell the company. Yeah, and how to sell it, but then sell it in a way that makes the most profit for for them. And well, I mean, it's not just profit. Vince also has all of those lawsuits bubbling through the courts. That he would love to get out from under. Oh no, there's yeah, there's there's always those lawsuits. But the way I the way I look at it when it comes into Vince and the reason why selling would be an option where you think five years ago it would never be an option, mm-hmm. it's ego. It's ego with yeah. him. The key and the people that he's put back in power with him, the Bruce Pritchards, the John Laurinaitis's, they've told him in his ear, you won the Monday Night War. You beat WCW. Your way 
we'd always, it's always going to be the best way. And the environment has changed in such a way where NXT worked. Where it's why and, he was so angry at H. Yeah, like NXT worked. You could tell, and and it showed that indie guys can adapt their style in many ways to WWE setting. Was yep. still not losing a lot of their things. Like, look at Gar- the Gargano and Champa series. Mm-hmm. It's the it's great, a great example. Yeah, it's a best example of it. If you could, you could see Champa being the psycho killer mm-hmm. coming into that area, but he adapted fairly well. Donnie did too. Yep. And but it shows it can work, but at the same time, yeah. It's only a small show. You focused it in Florida. And unfortunately, it grew to such an extent that it was it was more anticipated than their big four. And well, and it, it would have worked as a third show. It didn't work as a feeder system. No, no. And then, yeah, it, there's at that that's where part of it, like when the rebranding happened, I understood part of it. Mm-hmm. Because the when I told when I think I tweeted it out that when somebody said like they never should have done this, why are they doing this? Like I understand at a point they're doing it because you cannot have in many ways if you're gonna have a product that resembles a sports league, mm-hmm. you cannot have the minor league constantly outdoing the major league. Right. And that's and that's what's what's happening with NXT. And I told and I told somebody it would be like NBA All Star Weekend, and the thing that people are looking forward to are the G League events, right? And instead of the All Star Game, like that's that's what happened. And unfortunately, at a certain point, the two that what NXT was supposed to be clashed with what it became. It was supposed to be a developmental system. The guys were probably weren't going to be right. around for more than a year before they moved up to the main roster, but. Guys stayed. They built up fairly well, and the people that they wanted that wanted to sign WWE, they wanted to go through NXT first, right? Well, and I think that's part of the issue is that like what NXT should have been is it should have been WWE's show for hardcore wrestling fans. Mm-hmm. You know, it was never going to outperform Raw or SmackDown. Not from a perspective of quality, but Raw and SmackDown were always going to make more money than NXT. NXT was going to have a devoted, rabid fan base that cared predominantly about wrestling instead of sports entertainment. Mm -hmm. NXT should have been WWE's wrestling show. And trying to keep it a developmental was a problem. And I think part of what happened is that when Vince decided well, I won the Monday Night Wars, so Triple H should be able to do this and decided to move NXT as counter-programming to Dynamite. That was the end for Hunter. There was no way NXT was going to be able to, to stand up to that fight. Not because NXT isn't a good show, but because NXT couldn't have the stability. Anytime somebody gets hot in NXT, they have to leave. Yeah. That 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 was always going to be that that was always going to be oh the flaw into it. That's why, that's why I said like what it was supposed to be clashed with what it became, right? Because yeah, what it's supposed to be is a theater system where guys stay at most two years, right? And by you see whether you have it or not, and 
what it became is things that people wanted to stay. Like when Pete, when Alistair Black asked to go down to NXT, mm-hmm. you know you have a problem in your main roster, but you're too stubborn to admit you have a problem. So instead, you surround yourself with people that are going to tell you you don't have a problem. And now you turned NXT to where it is now, which is not a bad show. It's not, it's not the other garbage that some people want to say it is because I see the direction no. that they're going. Uh, you see the characters that, that, that they're building. Like you can see Tony, you can see Tony D'Angelo be on SmackDown in two years. Sure. Carmelo, I would not be surprised if Carmelo Hayes is drafted in the fall. He, he's that good already. Same thing with same thing with Steiner's kid. It would not surprise me. Well, he's got to learn to talk a little more. Yeah, was Steiner's kid? Yeah, and for the love of God, WWE, call him Steiner. Like, yep. nobody, it, you ain't you ain't fooling nobody. He's Steiner. Well, I, I think one of the things that we're going to see with NXT 2.0, and maybe I'll be wrong. I think one of the things that we're going to see is that part of why they're using these silly gimmicks is they're trying to teach specific skills and whatever you were in NXT is going to get erased when you get called up to the main roster. I suspect that he will not be Braun Breaker when he goes to the main roster. Well, yeah, he shouldn't be. Like He shouldn't be. Like he should, like to me, like if you can make, if you make them, you can make the name change in the next month. People will forget that he is Ron Breaker. They'll just call him Rex Steiner. But WWE missteps like that a lot. They force people to change their names who shouldn't have, and then they don't figure out how to adapt things. One of the things that always got me about Aleister Black at WWE is he was coming up to the main roster and coming through right as Undertaker was getting to the point where he was too old to work. Um. I, I know, and, I know what direction you're going to. Yeah, and you—they never tried passing that torch. They never tried tying some of that reputation and gravitas that the Undertaker character had to another very similar younger guy, and carrying the momentum through. You know, Bray Wyatt could also have been that guy. You know, you had options, but like yeah. they never tried. And that was a good place where, like, sorry, Black, we're calling you up from NXT, and you're going to be Taker 2.0. Deal with it. You know, here, here's your truck of money. Shut up and work. <laughs> and it would have worked fine. It would have worked fine. But in those moments, they don't do the silly corporate thing. But then, you know, they they take Rex Steiner and make him Braun Breaker. Or, you know, there's a hundred examples of, of guys who had to change their names. Even the Brian Danielson, Daniel Bryan thing was stupid. Yeah. Uh, and that part, but, you know, at least that worked because he made, at least Danielson made it work. And he made it work to a point where even to this day, people are still calling him Daniel Bryan. Right. Now, the thing with, uh, the thing with Black that, uh, that always bothered me is they wanted Taker to not follow the standard rules. And right. 
because he did so much for the company. Because the standard rule is you leave on your back. And that's why, like, in the last match that he had, the last match where you felt like it was going to be it, it was was against Roman. Mm -hmm. And it didn't fit well because Roman at that point was was not where he needed to be. He wasn't the tribal chief. But you could have had somebody like that, like an Aleister Black. Right. Come in, do some of the spooky things that he needs to do. Because what Aleister Black, what made it, what made it to me very, very interesting was he didn't have to do a lot of like shadows and urns into it. It's just mainly the candles, mm-hmm. him resting like he's Lestat from Queen mm-hmm. of the Damned. And then just that coming up, and then just, and then just activating, right? It fits so well, like that could have, could you? And I could just imagine the type of interest he could have had. Right, he carried himself the right way, and I, yeah. I think that was the connection that I made to Taker for him, is that Alistair Black just seems scary. You put him in the right costume, and he's just threatening. Yeah, <laughs> which yeah. was what Taker had. You you put Taker in the right costume, and he's just scary. It worked. Uh, and, and you know, that part of it is, it still worked even when you went through the American Badass stage. Right. It, he just looked like, okay, like, okay, you're a biker dude. You could take him seriously as a biker guy. Right. And then the biker guy's like, you know what? I do have this dark side. I'm going to go back to that. <laughs> back to and Undertaker. It, yeah, and then it fit, and then it fits so well. Black could have done that. He could have done that fairly well. Now, the main thing would have to be is I I do wish him away, and they're they're trying to somewhat do it in AEW, but they don't have the tie-in. The tie-in would have been Selena. Where yeah, they you could have had at when Andrade had that little group with him, Garza, and also Theory. Mm-hmm. They should have put black in that group, and that and that would have been the tie-in. Granted, it, it it would have made the argument that they had on TV funnier too. Yeah, I I also think though Andrade obviously came in wanting to go back to to Lij. Yeah, like he really wanted to go back to the character that he had worked in the past. Yeah, that's and yeah. and like. I also think it's smart to bring Andrade in like that because it gives you the opportunity if the connection ever happens with New Japan again to bring those characters together because they're of a stable. You know, it's an international stable. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's what I, that's it. what I love that they were doing it with okay, with okay, you have you have Andrade, you have the leader. Mm-hmm. You have Garza who can be the workhorse. Mm-hmm. And then you have the young stud in theory. Oh, for sure. And that would have worked so well, but then they decided to break them up. And then they fired Selena mm-hmm. for daring to make money outside yep. of their, uh, their thing. And then, well, now that she's back, look, she's recovered fairly well. Like the, the queen thing actually fits her. <laughs> if you met enough Puerto Rican women, it fits well. <laughs> but uh, but that aspect of that's what falls behind. And that's like, there's things that both companies do sure. really, really well. Like AW, 
yeah, they'll cater to that anti-WWE audience and they'll do it fair and they'll do it fairly well, but you cannot say that 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 they're just not talented. Yeah, I get why people get annoyed at Orange Cassidy. I get it. <laughs> I get it at a certain point, but for everyone, I get Cassidy, it. I don't agree with it, but I understand. <laughs> yeah, at that part of it, I get it. But at the same time, you have a Jungle Boy who has all the potential. You have NJF, who's one of the best talkers in the industry. Probably, I mean, the only guy I can think of who's better right now than MJF on the mic, and it really is a day-to-day thing. Some days he's better, some days MJF is better, is Eddie Kingston. Yeah. (laughs) There's Kingston, obviously, in that front. You have, obviously, now you have Danielson. Yeah. I think they bungled a little bit what they would have done with the Undisputed Era. But... I don't think anybody in the Undisputed Era is as good on, on the mic as Kingston and MJF, honestly. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. And that has, not on the mic and that has, I'm, I'm talking. Oh, okay. To, I'm talking about a group that you could see stand out. Like, I think they bungled that a bit, unfortunately. But that's a pattern I've seen, unfortunately, with the Young Bucks. Mm-hmm. Like, there's groups, unfortunately, that the, that the Young Bucks, they do the Hogan style. Area. Mm-hmm. They've done it to Private Party. They're technically doing it right now with Cole, Fish and O'Reilly in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. They did it to FTR. They they really did it to FTR. Oh yeah. FTR got screwed with the Bucks. Yeah. They that one. And when it comes time to it, they're gonna do it with Jurassic Express. Yeah. I mean, I really do think they need to. They need to stop hiring new tag teams. <laughs> they, like yeah. there's, there's too much. And like part of the problem is there's too much. And honestly, the Young Bucks shouldn't be in the picture given some of what they have. Like when, when you have when you have LAX, Lucha Brothers, Jurassic Express. Well, I'm on the fence about Jurassic Express. FTR um, and the Acclaimed. It's really tough for me to believe the bucks are standing there and now you're going to add the kings of the black throne with uh with alistair black and, and brody king like <laughs> on the on, on, and this is and this is going to be the more interesting part when it comes to it you mentioned the acclaim the varsity blondes are good as well grayson yeah. grayson and pillman jr they can work fairly well they still need a good amount of work but yeah, they have they have potential, and because because they're raising hell on Twitter, the Briscoes are right out there. Oh, see, I think I think the Briscoes are going to have a real tough road if they want to come into AEW, given some of their uh, some of the history of their comments. Oh, oh yeah, and that for yeah, it's one of the reasons why they never they never went to WWE. So the reason why. Yeah. Jacob Fatu will never be in WWE unless they yep. unless they sell the company. Yeah, because like the <clears throat> I, I I think I think the Briscoes. I mean, granted, they've gotten rid of the Confederate flag, so that helps with them. But you know, some of the comments they've made about gays are just so so beyond the pale. Oh yeah, can't really be sold as as heel talk. Um. Like I, I think they'll have a real, real tough time. 
Oh no, that that's yeah, that's one of the main reasons why that that match has to happen. And unfortunately, I have a feeling it'll never happen. Yeah, it'll never happen as long as FTR signed to AEW. That, right. Yeah, you're not you're not going to get it. Also, <clears throat> I I just I know people love the Briscoes, but I just don't see it. I don't see them as being a good fit. There's so many heel tag teams right now. It's just not, you know, and why take on the liabilities if you don't have to? Yeah. Oh, no, that part, that part I get, like, because it is a tough record. I think what people are just going for it is, is the look. Sure. It's the look at the fact that a lot of these teams, they do have outstanding. It sounds like your mic cut out. No, it's just my, I have my phone next to it. <laughs> ah, I apologize. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm looking into it because like one of my friends just decided to look into something, but all right. No, but what I mean is like, they don't have a lot of teams that you could say are intimidating. True. And the, and the Briscoes, if anything, they're intimidating. <laughs> Although part of that is booking. There's no reason LAX shouldn't be intimidating. Oh, no, that's what I mean. Outside of LAX and outside of the House of Black, like LAX on their own, they can be intimidating, but sure, they, they, they need to get the fuck out of the inner circle. They do. And like, well, and I, I suspect that we're going in that direction too. You know, I would love to see uh, Andrade... Kingston and LAX forming like a little a little clutch, a little click. Um, you know, or even just Kingston and LAX if they're planning on rolling out trios belts. <laughs> yeah, which they, they've been teasing for how long now? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean Kingston and LAX for trios belts would be incredible. <laughs> yeah. But three guys, all of them can work, all of them can talk. Yeah. <laughs> what else and, do you want? And you know what? Bring you know what? If you're gonna bring it in, bring the entire package back in. Bring in the Amante. Like, sure. Just bring. Just have the whole LAX be there, minus yep. Conan, obviously. But the problem that to me that's old that, and this has been, and this is more like who is in charge of the tactics, which unfortunately is the Young Bucks. Yeah. It's the problem that they had. That they 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 granted they accuse Jim Cornette of saying like he held them back into it, but mm-hmm. he does have a point because Ghetto did the same thing to them in New Japan. Yep. They, they don't look like they should hang around with like the big with the big no. tag teams. It was is the reason why they were so long. They were so in the juniors. Like only yep. when they were about to leave did they try to move up to the heavyweight tactics. Well, and I mean, there's, they also had a significant problem in that straight tag team wrestling just isn't a focus of new Japan. And it's kind of, you know, it's, it's almost like a bench warmer belt. The, the heavyweight tag belts, you know, are almost like a, all right, let's keep a little something kind of attention on these guys we plan on using later 
because um, there aren't a lot of dedicated heavyweight tag teams in New Japan. Like you have Gorillas of Destiny. Uh, you had Sonata and Evil, but that's not there anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of it. Um, right now, the the heavyweight tag team champions are um, Zack Sabre Jr. and um, oh, why am I blanking on his name? I, I know you're talking about a black and that too. Yeah, yeah. Going by going by the name Dangerous Tackers. They've they're not a tag team. Like they're in the same faction, but they're not they're not a stable tag team. And I think they took it off of. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, they took the belts off of Tanahashi and Kota Ibushi, who again are singles wrestlers. <laughs> yeah. But, um, and, and that's the thing. And that's the thing when it comes into that entire aspect. Of, that's, it's pretty much one of the reasons why New Japan, why to me, it doesn't grow as well as it does. Like they do focus a way, way too much on building factions. Right. And because at a certain point, okay, you have the Bullet Club, you have Chaos, you have Empire, you have Suzuki Gun. Right. Well, Chaos is really only a faction in name only. You know, Chaos is like, and here's all of your faces. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's, that's what (laughs) fell into it. That's what fell into it. Like, Chaos is all your faces. Bullet Club is, here's all the Gaijin. Right. Which is mostly not Gaijin anymore, which is weird. (laughs) <laughs> that's what I mean, but that's what Empire did. Like, okay, here's the new guy yeah. group, and and Suzuki Gun is here's the guy led by the scary grandpa. Like, right. So, so Suzuki Gun is just constant. Like they're they're heels, but they're chaos. Like, well, okay, sorry, with the team chaos that doesn't work. They're they're, they're just a chaotic element. They're just a, a group of thugs who roll in and mess things up and aren't afraid to get a DQ because they're too busy brawling outside of the ring. Yep. Um. Yeah, so that Suzuki Gun is, is kind of a thinner faction, too. Then you have LIJ. Yep. And then you have, I, like, the Old Man League. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. But that's, that's, I mean, that, that's, that's how many factions? Five. But part of it is nobody except the, the old men who open shows don't have a faction. Everybody else has a faction. Yeah, and at a certain point it gets it gets redundant. Like, why do you have tag team when you have all these factions? And to me, that's right. that's one of the traps that AEW has fallen into. Like, well, the the reason for the factions in New Japan, and I, I don't love it, but it at least has a it has a certain logic to it, is every show has several preview tag matches, which are basically trios matches, although sometimes it's four on fours, um, and it's faction versus faction where everybody in those matches have something coming up with someone else in those matches. So it makes for easy booking and easy in-ring storytelling. Um, if somebody isn't in a faction, then it's tough to get them into those. It would be tough to fit them into those preview tags. Um, and it allows you to constantly have a churn of guys who don't have an active storyline, at least getting a little bit of time. Um, I don't love it, but it's, it would be hard to have guys who weren't in factions in New Japan given how they book. Oh, no, I understand it. Like, so I understand yeah. why they do it. It's just that there's too many of them. And that's the bad part of it. That's to me, there's, that's what one of the traps that AEW was falling into is okay. You have the inner circle, right? You have the pinnacle, you have mm-hmm. black screw. You're going to have whatever Andrade is going to build into once Ric Flair comes in. Ric Flair is never coming in. 
That's the bad part. That you was, say never, and then one day he'll show up. It's possible, but I, I think, I think Dark Side of the Ring drove a stake through his heart. <laughs> I think he's done. Well, I would, I would agree in certain aspects of the fact that Tommy Dreamer wasn't back in Impact, and the fact that he actually got a podcast out of it. Granted, <laughs> it's with Mark Madden, but he actually got a podcast out of it. Like if 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 the dark side of the ring episode really really damaged him, we wouldn't pay attention to this podcast. But people listen to it every day. True. And Andrade already laid some seeds into it. Like I have only one father-in-law hand me the picture with Ric Flair. Like uh, it's like, and that's when I said like, "Yep, he's coming." I I would be I, I would be surprised. I would be disappointed. Oh no! Yeah, part of it is disappointed, but at the same time, Tony Khan does have a fetish. <laughs> We're old. He does. Yeah, Jim Crockett, the Jim Crockett era people, and Flair's like the ultimate jewel in that front. And especially since Rick is not going to go back to the WWE as long as Nick Khan's around. Yeah. Well, Flair is also a problem backstage. Yeah. Like Flair is a problem in the locker room. Flair is a problem backstage. Flair is unpredictable. Flair has the drinking problem. Like. well, that's what I mean. The, the only thing that they can, the only way it would work is if you have Charlotte. Because Charlotte can at least look at him like that, don't do this. But the problem is, Charlotte's falling to the same type of traps yeah. that she is. And it's, it, it's bothersome in a way because she is, she is one top three best rest, women's wrestlers WWE has. True. And if it's to a point where almost nobody wants to work with you, if it's to the point where somebody that's up and coming like Tony Storm would rather quit the company than work with you, yep, that that speaks volumes. Because the especially now with Sasha Hurt, they don't have a fallback. They don't have a yep. fallback for her right now. On SmackDown, it was set up for the Tony Storm thing, and then Tony Storm just got pissed one day and said, "Like, you know what? Fuck it. I'll fly back. I'll ask for my release. I'll wait three months, and then guess what? I'm gonna. I show up in Stardom. Yeah, she'll go to Stardom and do fine. Yeah, which to me works really well because I know some people try to say that oh she's gonna be in AEW like no." Like, her best part of her career has been a stardom and also her fiance is in new Japan and more than likely is going to resign. Yeah. So she has no, yeah. And there's no need for her to go to AEW, even though AEW would greatly, greatly benefit from having her in the women's division. Yeah. Although we will see how long <coughs> he continues to be in new Japan. Cause he hasn't been over there in a while. Like he wasn't yeah. involved in the G one. Um, yeah, he's been doing a lot more things do, with Impact. Yeah, yeah. I do think we need to wrap this up because uh, it's eleven thirty here, and I do. Have I just, I just literally noticed the time, dude. I just literally <laughs> did. But it's been great talking to you. All right, but you know what? Let's set something up for next week because I'm obviously we're gonna have to see how Dynamite works here, and because Raw, sure. Raw tonight was it was Raw. <laughs> but yeah, definitely says something because by then, like NXT should be should be done. We'll see what's happening in, with 
dynamite because honestly, they should just they should put Danielson back into that feud. That they don't just jump into Lance Archer immediately. Yeah, Danielson versus Lance Ar- Lance Archer is a weird choice. Um, although we'll see. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, yeah. Uh, shoot me some times, and uh, we'll figure it out. All right. Uh, you have a good one. All right. You as well. Bye bye.